Hey, did you ever hear the one about the barber and the bow-legged altar boy? It's not time for that. We have three weeks until this amusement park reopens. We've got a log ride, a carousel, and a house that didn't used to be haunted, but now it is. But we still don't have a roller coaster. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. We got a memo from corporate. They want to know if you've heard the one about the height restrictions and the two monkeys that escaped from the zoo. Yeah, of course I heard about that. It was the worst tragedy in this park's history. I had to write the press release. Hey, hey, don't shoot the messenger just like you shot those two monkeys. Can we not talk about this? We need a roller coaster. Okay, uh... How about one of those where you're like, your feet dangle? Eh, there's too many foot fetishists out there. No, there aren't. What if it's like one of those towers? A drop ride, those are easy. No, no, that's too easy. Okay, okay, big picture. What do you like on a roller coaster? Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't we design it like for ourselves, you know? Well, I like a lot of loops. All right, well, now we're getting somewhere. How about when you're on the loops, it sprays water on you? Oh, I like that. Yeah, it should be a roller coaster and a water ride. Yeah, with 3D simulation. No, 4D. 5D. Yeah, and it should have nights on it. I don't know about nights. Yeah, nights like the round table. They're cool. Oh, those nights. I thought you meant like evenings, the soir. Well, at night, it's all glow in the dark and it goes backwards. And all the employees speak backwards too. Indothraki. And the tracks of the ride should be cheetah print. And everybody gets fast passes. That way there's no line. And you have to get on the ride mid-loop. But, but, but instead of water they squirt on you, it's Gatorade. Arctic Blast. And, and then the thing you sit in, it, it's a monster truck. But, and also... Every seat is a motorcycle. Ah, uh, dang! Yeah, yeah, and, and your feet do hang off the ride, and it's my job to touch all the feet. <laughs> it's underwater, but it's also on fire. <gasps> Whoa! And it's so fast, it's so fast, it's faster than a speeding bullet that got shot by an even faster bullet. It's faster than Steven Seagal's reflexes. <laughs> <laughs> then at the end, you land in a bowl of carne asada fries, but you realize it's not a bowl, it's a bra. Double D! Yeah! Boys, hurry now, your peanut butter and bagel bite sandwiches are ready. Your mom's so cool. Yeah, I guess. Hey, do you ever hear the one about the three-legged whore and the SS officer who farted into the harmonica? Ah, I ruined the joke. <laughs> Keep going. I'll, I'll, if you lay down a beat, we're singing different, two different <laughs> we're songs. Singing a James Bond song. Yeah, <laughs> you are high on Thunderball from Johnny Cash right now. You won't stop. Uh, okay. Hello. Hi. How's it going, everybody? Welcome. Nice. God. I know it, it's sad that we can't synchronize introduction to people. Yeah. Yeah, we can synchronize our swimming moves so well. That's practice. That's hours of practice. We didn't practice this. Our Russian coach makes us. We don't have a Russian coach here. He's Romanian. Da, 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 that thing yas does. I don't know. That's no language. That's not even an accent, really. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first regular episode. In a while. No, I think to them. To them. Seamless. To those people it just seems like the last one was live we haven't sat down and recorded an actual episode in three months you're making it very obvious <laughs> i forgot rule one not to tell everybody about your shortcomings <laughs> right from the podcast. To tell people why we're not doing well at this i, mean, I never learned how to crochet oh no, oh, doing no it doing it i bragged to everybody i know how to swim but i know how to swim and they keep inviting me to pool parties but i always pretend to be sick i, I tell a lot of people that i know jujitsu <laughs> only half of that's true 
one day we'll have uh, sponsors, and we won't need to do this up front. We can just no. I think we're sponsored by jujitsu <laughs> this, this week. We're sponsored by all martial arts. <laughs> you ever like doing jujitsu, but you hate having to go out to shop for it every month? <laughs> this will send jujitsu to your door every month. Just <laughs> examine the bully that we send to beat you up. Study his moves. If you don't like it, just keep it. We'll send another one. <laughs> Free. Free of charge. Free. My throat's hurting because I'm getting sick. Everybody, oh. I just realized hey, about. Come on, stop telling everyone. Haven't we gotten back in the swing of it? Stop telling them. They can't know that we're we're human. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm. Uh, in case you all forgot, since last month, I'm Daniel. I'm Greg. This is Allie Meekly. Hello. Hi. Oh boy, that was everything we had in us. <laughs> is it over yet? Welcome to September. Wake me up when uh, four years running. (laughs) Four more years. (laughs) We'll never stop. See what song I'll reference in eight years. (laughs) Maybe there'll be a new song about September come uh, 20... In the year 2525, there'll be another song to reference. Hi, we're going to be talking about theme parks today of yesteryear, Los Angeles. Not necessarily theme parks, but also amusement parks. Oh, amusement parks. Because I'm learning that there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Between I just learned in reading. Yeah. They're called theme park for a reason. Uh, they're not a collection of loosely themed <laughs> carnival rides? No. More so than a theme park, I'd like a motif park. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have something that's like more moody? <laughs> How about an ambiance part? <laughs> Let's have one of those. Let's try it. Come on, Disney. I mean, I saw that you had one of those like shoot the clowns in the mouth thing. Do you have a whole park themed around shooting <laughs> things in the mouth? We each picked uh, about three mm-hmm. uh, parks. Uh, sorry. What? <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't have to. Uh, it didn't take me hard to. It, wow. It didn't take I me didn't, hard. Something took you hard. <laughs> That sentence took me pretty hard. It didn't take me a long time to realize what I wanted to was to go back and cover three uh, things I've covered in uh, previous yeah. episodes with more uh, focus. Everything that you were coming up with, like, haven't we done that? Yeah, but with more time. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about trolleys that long this time. <laughs> but still, pretty, but still uh, pretty long. About two pages. Yeah, we each picked three from Greg's are older, mine are not as older. Just like uh, we are, I'm very with it. Uh, Greg is just from another I'm just another a, century. A link to where we've been. A link to the past. Maybe Nintendo. a compass to where we're going. Um, <laughs> I am a link from the past and a compass to the future. <laughs> I am Criswell at the beginning of Plan 9. I'm In the future of the future. Sure. Tomorrow, tomorrow will be, will be the, the future. future. This is enough. I'm going to get into it. I got a couple moments in riffing. <laughs> I have a few more movies I've seen in the last few months that I'd like to bring up. Uh, we got Thunderball. <laughs> Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's all movies you've seen that I wish I saw with you. <laughs> uh, I like to do things alone. Um the first one I'm going to do, Bush Gardens. Oh. Something we've tiptoed around uh, with a very drunk tip. Uh, we're sober tipping it. <laughs> this is a badge or whatever they're called, an AA coin. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to turn in our AA badge now and our AAA badge. <laughs> in the same historic tradition of such events as Altamont, Bush Gardens' mission of combining beer and amusement park rides operated under the same credo of what could go wrong. <laughs> On the flip side of our imported German brewers from the alcohol episode like my and Zobelin, who started their brewing careers locally, another German named Adolphus Busch. He got his start in brewing up ice-cold alcoholism in a different city than Los Angeles. He was born 1839 in Castel, Germany. He was the youngest of 22 siblings. Oh my god, that's a joke. I'm not joking. That's why he had to make the beer to supply supply to all of his sad siblings. So Lil Adolph, he moved to St. Louis, Missouri at the age of 18. He opened up a brewery supply business there and in 1861 he married the daughter of a brewery operator named 
Eberhard Anheuser. All of this is made up. Germany's made up. They decided to merge not only their naughty bits together, but also their family companies to become Anheuser-Busch. How do you pronounce that? Anheuser-Busch. Is it Anheuser or Anhauser? An- I've, I've always heard, like Bush. in commercials, An- Anheuser. An- An- Anheuser. 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 <laughs> What's up? Anheuser. No, it's Anheuser. What's up? What? <laughs> I repeat. What's happening? <laughs> what's happening, bud? What's happening? Why is what's happening? Save it for the intro next month. Save it for the, the Spinal Tab Budweiser commercial mashup intro that's coming. It's a mighty wind. Is, that, is it? Yeah. yeah. It's the same movie. They're all the same. It's all bands with Fred Willard, uh, who was also in Salem's Lot, which I watched. <laughs> Directed by Toby Hooper just died. They're all coming together. Who I also just watched. Uh, so in, I watched his death. Uh, it was by my own blade. Uh, in 1878, Anheuser-Busch started brewing a beer named after a town from their beloved Bohemia. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, oh my God. I listened to. So this beer, this beer, Jessica Beal. Uh, this beer was called Budweiser. But what really set their company apart was that Bush would pasteurize the beer, which meant that they would keep longer and could now be shipped across the country. But their friends had taken their keys away from them, so they had to sober up for a few hours before they could get shipped across the country. This is how Adolphus Bush became a millionaire. And like all millionaires at the time, he had to own a house in the new winter getaway for America's elite, Pasadena, California. Not just anywhere in Pasadena, on South Orange Grove Boulevard. Oof. South Pass. Which was, is that, is that, what are you saying? I don't know what the cross street is, but I just know that it runs through South Pasadena and I I get chills. the cross street of a million dollars and a checking account. How about that? You'll never be there. It's the cross street (laughs) of you won't and live here. (laughs) (laughs) That hurt on so many levels. This area of of South Orange Grove uh, Boulevard, it was known at the time as Millionaire's Row. Also living on that street were the Wrigley's and the Gambles of Procter & Gamble, and more importantly, Doc Brown's house from Back to the Future. That's the gamble. Fictional doctor? More important than all those medicines they made, fake doctor lived fake there. Doc- the house Bush bought was previously owned by John Cravens, who was the founder of SoCal Edison. Oh, wow. Uh, Wes Craven also died. Um, Bush called this house Ivy Hall because it had ivy growing over it and because it had a hall. Not creative at all, but then he just mashed their names together for the beer, so I'm not expecting a lot. Come on. Hey, come on. Yeah, come he, on. It's he, America's beer. He's not a few. It's America's German beer. <laughs> At first, he bought just the mansion in a nearby four-acre ravine in May 1904, but soon he expanded his property by buying 11 more acres that he called the Annex. Eventually, their property spread over 38 acres located around the area of Matt. Here's your intersections for you. Madeline Drive, South Arroyo Boulevard, and South Orange Grove Boulevard. Okay, I don't know any of those. Yeah. <laughs> never been there. I've never <laughs> been to exists. Pasabina. Pasabina. <laughs> Pasabima. Most of this land, Bush and his wife, Lily, got to live out their family fantasy of turning it into a huge, expansive, and expensive garden of different types of plant life and designs, a lot like what Huntington did with the Huntington right. Gardens. They added 14 miles of walkways around the gardens and brought in 100,000 plants to help decorate it. How many miles? 14. And that's the property? I mean, it's not like a straight line of 14. It's like 14 oh, miles oh, of oh, walkways. I see, I see. Okay. So it's probably just okay. a zigzag. Yeah. It's a, a really closely cropped zigzag. It's like any given Disneyland ride line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's all it was. The line for Disneyland started here. <laughs> Population was booming back then. <laughs> one of the plants they had was a clipping from one of the weeping willows that surrounded Napoleon's grave in St. Helena. That's pretty cool. That's a, that's a folk tale right yeah, there. Yeah. It was smaller than all the other <laughs> weeping willows. Yeah. Uh, but it thought it was more powerful. And it grew more aggressively. <laughs> And it, it, it caused a lot of strike, but people still respect him. Because the trees are wearing a funny hat or whatever. I don't know. They also had decorations like an old working mill powered by a stream. And to make their grandchildren happy, statues of characters and scenes from different 
Hans Christian Andersen stories. This is before, obviously, way before Disney. They still had Snow White before she was okay, before corporatized. She was cool. yeah. Yeah. Before they made her hot. Yeah. Before she was so sexy like she was in 1938. <laughs> Ooh, mommy. <laughs> Sign me up, daddy. I wish I was one of those birds chirp 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 uh, etc etc one thing that is still a mystery to me that was there is a little building called the mystic hut which all I know about it was that there was a secret table that you could press a button and it would flip out and there would be a bunch of candy all over it and if that's mysticism I'm resurrecting Rasputin uh, sign me up save me Aleister Crowley <laughs> yummy mummy there were ponds and places to sit and every everything you can think of when you think of a garden and if you were in the den of the top floor of their house you could look over all of this but you oh, wouldn't wow. be because yeah. come on Millionaires Row. I mean, yeah, unless you're a gamble, even that's a gamble. one of the one of the many gamble children. Those gamble <laughs> bastards out there. Twenty two gambles, and they kept losing. <laughs> but the bushes didn't just make this garden for themselves and their greedy little grandkids who want hut candy. They want beyond this realm, fourth dimension hut candy. <laughs> they wanted to share it with the world. So in 1906, the gardens that belonged to Bush opened for free to the public. Hence. Bush Gardens. Right. They became instantly popular and soon they were a must-see attraction for anybody that came to visit Los Angeles. They were so popular that Pacific Electric built a new line running straight to the gardens. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, I'm not. It was a 14-mile... Can you check the footnotes and see if that's a joke? Um... Oh yeah, it's a it's a chuckle buster. <laughs> it's a little humor line. The ones that have Groucho noses next to them, <laughs> those are the those are the jokes. The gardens became part of the triangle trolley trip that went. That, that's part of our vocal exercises. The triangle, triangle trolley trip. trip. They went from the gardens to Santa Monica and the oil fields, which a weird combo. Also, really far. This is how we made all of our money. <laughs> Beer, ocean. I bought oil. the ocean oil. <laughs> One visitor was President Taft. That fat bozo. Well, yeah, he said, "I would like to." play golf here and sit down under those beautiful trees when I get tired. Unfortunately, he accidentally sat in a bathtub under one of those trees and he was stuck for a week. <laughs> That's not funny. That's rude. That's problematic. This is a controversial episode. In summer 1909, they added a new section to the park to accommodate all these visitors. They also had events like the annual Easter egg hunt for orphans, complete with chickens running around dyed the same color as the eggs. No. Yeah, it's fun. No, no it's fun. Just plug the chicken's nose and dunk him in the dye tank. That's how you get different colored eggs yeah duh. that's how you get chocolate milk a brown cow now a, a purple chicken that has little easter eggs and chicks written on it that's uh i don't know how easter works i've done it twice something about dying chickens i don't know <laughs> dying chickens and born saints i don't know <laughs> the gardens were also used to film a lot of movies over the years uh-huh. such as they've, they've got a great resume the adventures of robin hood got it gone with the wind okay citizen kane yes dr jekyll and mr hyde and yes. frankenstein were all filmed. really yeah the old mill they destroyed it to make frankenstein <laughs> adolphus and lily ran the garden together until he cracked open an ice cold coffin and died on, on october <laughs> Oh my god. Is this why people write in? Is this controversial? I'm like, if like I made a, a boo-boo? bead of sweat came down my head. Oh, don't say it. Oh, let's call me, don't say it. Oh, it's, a nice, well, it's a nice cold one. So he died on October 10th, 1913, but she kept it going and expanded the hours to seven days a week. But her life slowly started falling apart after he died, and so did the world. The Bush kids were American, but they married German nationalists. Well, oh. German nationals. That's I don't know if they're nationalists. I mean, there's good people on both sides. None. <laughs> They married Germans, and shortly after Adolphus died, Lily was visiting them in Germany when Europe came down with a case of World War One. So she was stuck in Europe until the end of the war in 1918. So she was stuck there for like four years. Then when she finally could come home, she found that the U.S. government had seized the gardens and her estate as an anti-German measure, even though she was a U.S. citizen. 
That was uh, why they had the whatever war that was. That's so why they, they had to do it again. Yeah, th- so they can get that property. World War II, the Battle of Bush. <laughs> Eventually, it got cleared up and she was able to return to her land, but it was only a couple more years until then prohibition hit. Mm. And if your money is being made off of an alcoholic beer company, uh, not good. Maybe you should have saved up a little bit. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have gone spending your money in Germany. <laughs> in 1915, 1.5 million people had visited the park, but it was costing $50,000 a year to maintain it. They started charging admission when the war started but Lily being so generous that she was known as Lady Bountiful they used all that money that they made to give to injured veterans from the war so then of course That's take fair. her money yeah it was just bleeding money so they had to sell off part of the estate but the rest was kept open by allowing it to be run by the Pasadena Hospital Association in 1920 then from 1921 to 28 it was taken over by the American Legion of California who started charging 25 cents admission 10 cents for children but in 1928 Lily followed Adolphus up to that big hopper in the sky and the park now she's died and the park kept bouncing around (laughs) and then she took a very high plane ride that's all she got a moon bounce (laughs) the park now kept bouncing around to different owners okay uh this is one of many lists of secessions i feel like you're laying the framework for how every one of these stories is going to be something was great it cost a lot of money (laughs) they sold it a lot and then it just died this is the template this is my odyssey (laughs) that all other epic stories will be modeled after first came the unemployment relief group in 1933 then back to the american legion in 35 they used it around this time for the pasadena flower show and for a few dog shows Mm -hmm. but in 1937 it closed to the public for good they offered to give the gardens to the city of Pasadena, but it would have been so expensive to maintain. They, like, I don't know. Yeah. We're not doing that. The land just got sold off piece by piece to developers. Some of what was in the gardens is still around there. I think the old mill is just in someone's backyard now. That's weird. It's just full of like golf clubs yeah. and skiing yeah. equipment and just like a bunch of toys a kid don't want to play with anymore. And the, there's just a button in someone's bathroom and it flips out <laughs> to have a bunch of treats from the Mystic Hut. And the government ch- keeps trying to seize it from them. <laughs> but this isn't the end of Bush Gardens what? or even the Bush Gardens you're thinking of. What? There was another. No. In 1954, Anheuser-Busch, Anheuser, whatever, they built a brewery in the excessively sunny Van Nuys at 15800 Roscoe Boulevard. Right off the 405. The place that smells like beer or french fries or dog food, depending on who you ask and what kind of dog food you buy. Do you like the smell when you pass by? I didn't when I first started passing by, but it became so familiar (laughs) that like I don't know what it smells like. And yeah. it's not particularly good, but it reminds me of something, yeah. and I like. The, sometimes I, it smells better. Like sometimes yeah. it smells like good French fries from a fast food place. Yeah, can smell like a charboiled place that yeah. like some dude is named after some guy's first name. Sometimes it, it smells like a burlap sack. Yeah, it's yeah. it's got weird smells depending on yeah. the day. So it it looks super spooky. Not like Victorian era. It looks like industrial. Yeah, it looks like a slaughterhouse. Yeah, it smells like one too, and you smell like one too. <laughs> but eventually, they wanted to build a West Coast counterpart to their Tampa-based. Bush Gardens, which in itself was a pumped up version of the original West Coast one. So in 1964, they opened up a Bush Gardens of their own right next door to the factory at 16,000 Roscoe Boulevard on 17 acres of what used to be a cabbage patch. <laughs> Admission at first was 25 cents to park and 50 cents to get in. But once you were in, boy, you were in. Unless you stepped out. Then you're then no readmission. Yeah, that's another 50 cents. And then 25 cents again, because we don't like your face. <laughs> inside the park, you began your visit on a suspended trolley that took you on a tour of the brewery on both the inside and the outside. This is going to be like, like Jurassic th- Park. Yeah. Welcome to Bush Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> what do they got in here? King Kong? No, we have beer. <laughs> we have a lot of beer. We have like mo- the most beer you've ever seen. <laughs> Life finds a, a glass. My favorite part of this episode is going to be the uh, the Jurassic Park references. Describing what's in the parks. They took you on this tour. Of the bre- You saw the brewery inside and outside to take you in. Then once you got off that thing you were free to roam the park which much like the one in Pasadena it was just a really nice park there were la- 
lagoons and waterfalls and a tropical nice. cruise boat ride. There was live entertainment from humans and also from animals in the Ooh. form of a penguin and otter exhibit. No. Yeah. A little penguin? Yeah. A little chilly willy? Where else could a penguin live but Van Nuys? <laughs> but the park was best known for two things. The first was the exotic birds. They were a huge focus of the park and there were over 2,000 of them from all over the world. Even more exotic were their ever-present cloica droppings. But it... <laughs> I bet you loved writing that. I did. <laughs> it's an animal joke. You're good I'm at putting them. my degree to use. It's an animal joke and a joke about poop. What's <laughs> what I do? It's what I do do. <laughs> ah, degree. But in true San Fernando Valley fashion, the thing most people remember it for was the free beer. Yeah. With every admission of people of drinking age, I assume. I hope. You, yeah, I don't know. So when you got in, you were entitled to two 10-ounce glasses of beer at each of the five different drinking pavilions in the park, all of it for free. So that's a total of 10 glasses of beer you could be drinking. For 50 cents. 50 cents if you didn't bring a car to the park, which I pray to God was the case for most people. But knowing what I know about the 60s this from Mad Men, yeah. I'm going to say no. The names of the beer pavilions I could find were the Budweiser Pavilion, the Bush Bavarian Pavilion, and the Michelob Terrace. The other two names I can only assume were the Malt Liquor Lounge and the DUI Gazebo. <laughs> <laughs> sober Up! The Sober Up Sauna. They expanded the park by five acres in 1972, and they upped admission prices to $1.75. The new area and some more additions in 1975 feature things like bumper cars, speed bores. That's not right. Bumper cars is a really <laughs> odd thing to have in a place where you get drunk and then you drive home. <laughs> it's the safest way. Ah, <laughs> he thinks he's going to open the door to his house right now. <laughs> they had a little guy in a police car giving out tickets to everybody. Mitch, put the car in the garage. I don't want the anyone driving by and seeing what I did. That poor kid. <laughs> poor penguin. That poor penguin, Mitch. Close the garage door, Mitch. <laughs> So I wrote speed boars, but it's not speed boars. It's speed boats, speed balls too. There was also a walkthrough haunted house, which also Ooh. sounds horrible if you've been drinking. <laughs> there was the Yahoo flume ride, which had logs that looked like wooden beer kegs that, you, that you sat in them. That's pretty cool. And a monorail connecting these two parts of the park. Surprisingly, 100 ounces of beer in a flume ride wasn't a good mix. And by December 1976, <laughs> attendance had dropped so much that the amusement part of the park was closed. And on January 5th, 1977, the focus was shifted back on the birds and it was renamed the Bush Bird Sanctuary. Oh, that's a hard sale. Yeah. You like beer and also birds? <laughs> but you didn't get, I, I think, I don't know if there was still beer even. Uh, the motto should have been uh, Budweiser. It's for the birds. Budweiser, it's German for Birds. <laughs> a visit here to the bird sanctuary. It still started with a 15-minute trolley tour of the factory, narrated by Ed McMahon. But now, <laughs> how appropriate he did it for the free beer. <laughs> but now, afterwards, instead of being let loose to scream for beer at underpaid teenagers, you were just surrounded by birds. <laughs> so disorienting. <laughs> they were just wandering loose in the park. You could take the boat tour to see more birds. Injured ones lived on an island in the middle of the lake. They were fed beer to feel better. <laughs> this is the world. The movie, The Birds, I feel was leading to. This is what uh, it would have been. Pre- Cool. Yeah, Planet of the Birds. But in 1979, the company decided a bigger brewery would be a better financial decision than saving a bunch of endangered birds. So the sanctuary was closed. The park was paved over. The brewery got bigger. And that's now what's off the 405. Okay. The only remaining bush gardens are now in Tampa and Williamsburg. As for this one, you can apparently still see the elevated trolley tracks on the outside of the building if you're on Roscoe. And part of the monorail track is still being used to move beer into the packing room. There's a bridge that goes over the railroad tracks there that is, there's no, you can't can't climb up it. It's just like wall and then bridge on top. Yeah. So it's a bridge to and from nowhere. That's the track 
of what would take you between the two parts of the oh, park. Wow, okay. So that's still standing just because it's like... Because yeah, it, it'll be a half-hour job and nobody wants to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And they're, they're all drunk. <laughs> As for the birds, most of them were sent either to the LA Zoo or to the Tampa Bush Gardens, but some people say that those exotic birds that you sometimes see around the city are actually descendants of those birds that wow. had escaped from the park. But there really weren't as many birds as there were when the park closed because a disease had spread through Southern California at the time, oh, and a, a lot of the birds were killed by it. Listen to the name. Newcastle disease. <laughs> Biomarketing warfare. It was at a, its best. It was a uh, British flu that passed <laughs> by, and all the birds seemed to like it, and sometimes they would just get mad at other birds. This was the real World War II. <laughs> Britain versus German. It's some sort of bird blitzkrieg. Bird lips. <laughs> I hate that you did that. Birdlin. But I also expected it. <laughs> so what's your first one? Schutz Park. Oh, previously no. mentioned in Uproot Root Root for the home team, which we're talking mm-hmm. about because it's eventually where That's pre-Dodger right. Baseball was played at Schutz Park. Baseball? Yeah, baseball. You ever base played baseball? F- I'm calling that base. Before so. it was baseball, it was baseball. <laughs> it was pretty boring, but I still went to every game. I had a favorite team. Schutz Park originally started, as you mentioned before, as a trolley park, and it was at Maine and Washington, near the courthouse that's on Washington, even closer to that sports museum that I think is closed down that I always want to go to, but it's never open because it probably closed down permanently. What part of town is this? This is uh, the, the like, like edge USC? of... Yeah, no, it's not no. USC. It's it's the outskirts of downtown. It's Washington, Maine by Traytech. It's just like LA. And it's in Los Angeles. It's in Los Angeles. It's at the edge of USC area. Like Adams is on the other so side. So it is near USC. It's not like Exposition Park, though. It's uh, like two no, miles from there. I think I know where it is. It's the Natural History Museum. Okay, Washington is 20th Street. So if the Cecil is on Main and 6th, and this is on Main and 20th, so I have to it's walk down the street. 14 streets. Got it. Let me just Google map in my brain. Okay, I got it. The land was originally owned by a fruit grower named John Lang, and in 1873, it was the site of the Sulphur Springs Hotel. Now, from my understanding, and this is more of a Santa Clarita Valley thing, but because there is a couple of those out there, Sulphur Springs Hotel was a mountain health resort. I'm going to read an ad for it that I found on the SCV history website. So let's see if we can figure it out together. This famous mountain health resort is again ready for guests. The hotel kept on first class principles. These springs require no comment from me and as no one has ever have As no one has ever claimed to have... You want to read this? As no one has ever claimed to have as good... And as for climate, I can say from 16 years experience right here that I don't believe it can be surpassed upon Earth. That was a hard sentence to say. It was a hard sentence to listen to. No, that's not true. (laughs) Altitude, 1,820 feet. Distance from Los Angeles City, 43 miles on SPRR. North toward San Francisco at Lang Station. Post Office Express, Telegraph, and ticket offices here. Excursion tickets to and from Los Angeles City, $3.75. Fine hunting grounds, plenty of horses, saddles, and carriages. Everything here that makes life pleasant and desirable. Fruits of all kinds grow here. Very fine flower garden, etc. Charges reasonable. White sulfur, water piped to hotel. It just sounds like a general relaxation spot. Like, I, I don't know what they're selling. It's a health resort based on sulfur springs, which I don't know even though, even though they have those in Santa Clarita. Unless they can use it to make meth, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just like the Earth's meth. It smells like farts, and it's hot. Like how I am when I do meth. So I'm sure that he didn't have one on Maine and Washington, but he had something <laughs> similar to it on Maine and Washington that was a sulfur springs okay. hotel. Also, according to the website, Lang built a two-star hotel in 1884 and named it the Sulphur Springs for the smelly water that gurgled up from Santa Clara, Clara, Santa, Clara, oh, Santa Clara sorry Santa Clara Riverbed. No, that makes more sense. I yeah. believe it all. Uh, which Lang insisted was a curative for every respiratory ailment short of tuberculosis and in 1886 he put the entire ranch on the market for $25,000 claiming he was too elderly to deal with it. This could have been the Chutes Park site because it should have gone to the Sulphur Spring I mean, rejuvenating. Let me tell you what you need pal. A taste of your own medicine. <laughs> Literally drink the sulfur. <laughs> put your face in it. Oh no. Drink the sulfur. This couldn't have been 
Ben shoots Park's site because in another ad it advertising that it was plenty far from Los Angeles, but I could imagine in the late 1880s he was selling yeah. off most of his properties, so he was just selling everything in that point. So Lang then sold his 35 acre lot in 1887 to David Waldron, who partnered with Isaiah Hellman, who oh va- Vasquez Everywhere. robbed his bank, and also he was a founding father of USC, and John G. Downey, who was the board on the 6th District Agricultural Association, which will come up. Oh, also he's the 17th governor of California. Oh, also he's the founding father of USC. And the three men together, Waldron, Downey, and Hellman, established a horse-drawn rail that connected the property at 2nd and Main in downtown to Shoots Park for 10 cents. So you can get a ride to the park, 5 cents for the kitties. Trolley parks, for anybody who doesn't know, were parks that at the end of the trolley line, you could just go and be a member of the community and go and picnic and play games and spend money, give me money. A common day, like, we can take a shuttle directly to a place where we're going to go yeah. spend money and then they'll shuttle us back to... What a racket. Are you spending money? <laughs> Have you spent money yet? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you spent money today? Have you spent your daily bread? <laughs> so let's just say it's up front. I can't keep track of the names. It seems to have been called Shoots Park first, even before the shoot the shoots ride was there. And later around 1904, it's it called Luna Park. And then again, it seems to have been called Shoots Park in 1907 when baseball took over, spoiler alert. And it was called Washington Park, which was around 1911. But there was a mention of it being called McCartney's Washington Gardens in 1917. That's when the Beatles came around. Yeah, yeah. That's when the, uh, all the Beatles owned separate teams and Ringo's <laughs> won and they couldn't figure it out. Waiting for you at the end of the trolley ride were Carnival Riot, Animals, a theater, a ballpark, which make note of. There was things <laughs> called the House of Trouble, which I imagine was a fun house, and the Cave of Winds, which... House of Trouble? Is that a prison? There was a merry-go-round that was electric power, which was state-of-the-art at the time, and there was this engine that pulled boats back up the lake to the tower, which was modern for its time. They had a high balloon ascension, which is like a hot air balloon that just rose up on a rope and then brought you back down. There was a shoots theater, and then the shoots theater had vaudeville. There was a small pavilion that had weekly variety shows, which had like typical western song and dances that between the acts, the actresses would go and mingle with the crowds, which sounds dangerous. <laughs> so animals were a main attraction at Shoots Park. One of them bit Waldron severely in the hand. Remember when we were hanging out and I said, how do you look up an article and you really want to find it? Well, how, like, how do you do deep research? And you're like, I don't know. This is what I want. <laughs> you look on Google. No, did you try, did you try uh, Ask Jeeves? <laughs> Does Siri know? <laughs> then I don't know. This is what I was trying to find out. What animal bit him in the hand and how bad? <laughs> and did he yelp like like he's uh, Did he cry George like Jetson. a little baby? <laughs> there was a seal pond. There was ostriches. Probably a seal. Might have been a seal. Loose seal. There was ostriches. There was burros. There was ponies. Uh, and could have been any these this is the usual suspects it could have been any of these things <laughs> to be bitten and not have your hand bit off it's one of these four <laughs> it's gotta be a chicken <laughs> maybe a camel main street was widened at some point <laughs> imagine getting bitten in the hand by a camel <laughs> usually they spit which is why i put my hand there they bit it <laughs> try to cover its mouth from spitting and just bit my hand i'll show you i'm all camels, I imagine, sound like John Wayne because they all smoke <laughs> cigarettes. I'll show you. That's why I never rode Bye. a camel. I don't rode horses. <laughs> Main Street was widened at some point, and with this extra room, Waldron opened up the ostrich farm, moving 41 oh, ostriches. An ostrich. It was most certainly an ostrich. He moved 41 more ostriches to be housed in pens mm-hmm. among orange trees that Lang had planted at the park. So what there was happened an or- to all these ostriches that were around L.A.? I think they just flew away. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I see packs of wild ostriches flying around. I think those are descendants, descendants. but I'm not not sure. The descendants of when the penguins and the one penguin mated with all the ostriches. <laughs> the two it's animals not. known for flight, penguins and ostriches. <laughs> the LA Times called the zoo there no small attraction, although other uh-huh. publications called it modest. I don't know who to believe. <laughs> this was around the time that they were it's blown not small. up. Modest is still not small. Modest is like humble. But oh. it's still not small. It could have been small. <laughs> yeah, right. Not small. <laughs> but hey, 
Hey, you're moderately intelligent. Hey, you're modestly intelligent. Modestly, you're very modest. <laughs> there was also apparently an opera house, but it was, from what I read, it was just a glorified honky-tonk saloon. It's fine with me. Let's call it an opera house. There's a bar called Library Bar. I, I'm like going there. Because like, there's a book in there. Can I check this out? What's the fine? What's what? <laughs> $18. There was also a hand-painted panorama of the Battle of Gettysburg, which was created for an 1885 Cotton Centennial Exposition in New Orleans, the New Orleans Exposition. It cost $250,000 and was considered one of the finest panoramas in the u.s it was fifty thousand dollars in, in was, those days yeah it was 90 feet in diameter it was apparently one of the most beautiful things that people had seen but there's not even there's barely any pictures of shoots park so i can't imagine there was a picture <laughs> of the diorama out there in 1887 our old friend a purifying fire mm-hmm. bought a ticket to the ride and burned down a 40 by 120 foot <laughs> pavilion which was uninsured the cause of the fire was never discovered ostrich disgruntled ostrich <laughs> you can fire me will you i'll show you <laughs> i'll set fire to the whole place <laughs> things gonna go up in flames you watch <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll be right. Then I'll tell you not to lock me in the pan overnight. He had the pavilion rebuilt and put up a white fence around the park, continuing to man the ostriches and the orange grove, the two most important things. Save the ostriches. I mean, at the time, that was really probably the two most like popular things was yeah. ostrich farms and orange groves. Yeah. The let, O let and the, the O. Let the seals die. They can live in water. Tell them to stay underwater for a few hours. Do they like salt water? We have a lot of that. <laughs> the problem was that people were not seeing the vision of his park that he saw. And there were people going around saying that his park was not a respectable endeavor. The upper tier of society avoided the park. So for the following years for the July celebrations in 1888, Waldron hired 60 musicians, promised a Vienna buffet, which I cannot figure out what mm. that is. Um, mm. <laughs> it was probably just a beer garden thing. It was a bunch of Budweiser and <laughs> cocktail sausages. <laughs> Floating in the beer. They were scheduled. As is the Austrian. <laughs> they can't get anything right. Scheduled fireworks and the streetcars would run till one in the morning and for the emission price of half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, still seems high. For That's that how time? much it was to get into Bush Gardens in the 60s. <laughs> Inflation. Inflation and then deflation. Which is how this podcast runs. The newspapers the next day said the Chinese lanterns <laughs> made the night seem like fairy tale-like and attendance was calculated at about 12,000 people. 12,000 peepers, <laughs> which means about 6,000 people. Nobody really showed up, but a lot of people were watching. The newspaper still made a jab calling the food overpriced, meaning it was probably like $2. But soon after- That is overpriced for the late 1800s. <laughs> and today, quite frankly. You saw me buy a $3 meal for the night. You're like, oof, I can <laughs> feel that. But soon after that, maybe 1894, 1895, there were many reports that the area was becoming a shanty town that it was run down. One side of the park was host to a lumber company. Waldron is going through a messy divorce and operations of the park were sporadic. Did they go up in flames also? It seems like they would. Like It seems like they were supplying the thing to everybody that eventually caught a fire. <laughs> Across the street is a Sparks factory. Is there a problem here? <laughs> on half the park, they were selling lumber. And on the other half, they were selling fire. And right in the middle, right in the middle was an, ostri- an ostrich with a vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to live here anymore. I will keep my head in the sand no longer. <laughs> What's funny about that is that's what you put out, or you used to put a fire out. Ostriches? <laughs> dead ostriches. <laughs> Throw on the dead ostriches. When the park started going to decline through the 1890s and on the brink of the 20th century to 1899, Waldron sold the park and the property to the Los Angeles County Improvement Company, who by 1901 added two new additions, a 4,000-seat theater and a 10,000-seat baseball diamond, as opposed to just letting the Vernon Tigers or the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League play on an empty field before the park got packed. The third edition was the big deal. The nationally revered ride was the invention of a man named Paul Boynton, who introduced the Paul ride. Paul Boynton? B-O-Y-N-T-O-N, who 
introduce the ride at Coney Island Pier, the ride was the Shoot the Shoots ride, which we've talked about many mm-hmm. times. Yeah. What it is, for anybody who hasn't heard, is starting here. Shoot the Shoots is a very long water slide starting from a 75-foot tower in the sky and sliding on a toboggan down a 300-foot ramp. And at the end of this is a 50-by-150-foot pond to splash into. They had okay. one at the old pier, one of the Venice piers. A kid fell off of it, and then they had to close the pier down or something <laughs> like that. The new park also offered a Japanese tea house, a bowling alley, a shooting gallery. There's a children's area with a goat, which also bites people, and a <laughs> pony ride also bites people. A zoological garden. We'll get and to that. And a bite garden. <laughs> a place to get your head bit. I got my foot bit. A good I want place to get back. your hand bit. There was picnic areas, and there was a restaurant. There was also a sea lion on duty as a star attraction at the park, and it was billed as a monster sea lion. What? Yeah, it's just a sea lion. <laughs> They're just trying to make another nickel. They also had a cat. a slightly large sea lion. <laughs> he was just kind of fat. They also had the Catalina Marine Band playing for the park. Later that year, the park's attractions kept expanding. They added three African lions to the zoo. Oh, my God. Uh, I hope that didn't bite Waldron. <laughs> At one point, the zoo contained something which was called boxing bears. <laughs> Oh. Do you think that they're it literally bears that were What else bo- could it be? Unless it's big hairy men, what <laughs> else could it be? I mean, obviously big hairy men are the people that box, <laughs> but what else could it be than two bears with gloves on? Two brown and bears yeah. and shorts. And they, they need them to come back to the corners. <laughs> Floyd Berryweather oh and Connor McGregor bear. It was the fight of the century. I swear to God, it was the fight of the century. Everybody was talking about it. Even the loser got paid millions in salmon, so we're all suckers. <laughs> like they're sucking off the heads of those salmon. And the final edition... Boxing bear. I'd love to see that. Me too. Like, it seems like they would be wearing fezes and riding small yeah. bikes and punching Well, that's other. how they get into the ring. <laughs> in this corner, a bear. In this corner, a bear. And there's another animal as their coach in the corner. She's like a boar or something. It's one of my uh, speed boars. Yeah. The final addition to this new zoo was a blood-sucking vampire. Vampire bat. <laughs> we can move on. No joke there. At night, he became Nosferatu. Anyways, <laughs> if we're wondering why there's an epidemic of vampires in Los Angeles in 1899, <laughs> maybe because... It, yeah, it was all just a sham to get Dracula snu- smu- snuggled into the country. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're going to get you in America. We get it. We know we're, you're a master overlord. You're a thing of another realm, but you got to take this job. You got to start from the ground <laughs> up, okay? <laughs> if you want to be a CEO, you got to start the mailboy. You know this. In this case, uh, you work in a zoo. There was a fishing pond added. There was a circus act called the Flying Venus who did aerial stunts under hypnosis. What? And there was a theater expanded to hold 1,400 people so they could view burlesque. Va va voom. Comedy. Mm. Ha 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 ha. Oh, that's funny. Acrobats. Wowee. Wow. Oh, wow. Contortionists. Ugh. Ow. Ugh, gross. Get a real job. <laughs> My spleen. Jugglers. Drop it. <laughs> drop it, drop it, drop it. And singers. Don't write me fast. <laughs> There's also a beer garden, of course. Glug, glug, glug. <laughs> oh, my stomach. <laughs> oh, God. Why did my family leave me? I'm only dead. Two years later, in 1903, they added a still framed figure eight roller coaster. There was a small railroad that rode alongside the park. There was a small circus. There was a den of serpents. What? Yeah, Indiana Jones, when he was a young man, fell into <laughs> yeah. it. Before that, he was like, I'm okay with, they're just a snake. And then after that, he was like, oh, snake. snake. Oh, and that's why he's afraid of boxing bears also. <laughs> <laughs> I hate boxing bears, Chuck. I why hate them? have to be boxing <laughs> bears? They open up the tomb. Bears. Bears. Boxing bears. I hate them. They were feeling so good that in 1904, they built the Shoots Park on the daily programs that they were printing as the largest amusement grounds in the Great West. It sounds like it. It sounds pretty impressive. I mean, there was nothing in Arizona, so maybe. <laughs> San Francisco was just sad at the time. It was just industry and fog. Oh, the let's fog start a San Francisco. Let's go podcast and call it Mystery and Fog. <laughs> Not even say mystery the first time. In 1910, the park was sold to new owners, one of whom was amusement park pioneer Frederick Ingersoll and reopened as Luna Park. This new group kept much the same amusements going on, but added a 
uh, Nemo's trip to Slumberland ride based off of Windsor McKay's comic strip, which was really popular. The ride was $75,000. It was a scenic railroad that ran the entire park along Main Street. Where are they getting this money from? I don't know. It's 1910. That's like $80 million. <laughs> yeah. The state of California costs less than that. <laughs> the shoots the shoots ride was remodeled at this point to be more a scenic water slide called Shoot the Rapids because I guess Shoot the Shoots was not popular anymore. Yeah, Rapids are cool. Trust me. I, I, I read the demographics. I read tiny, uh, Tiger Beat. Rapids are in. Shoots <laughs> I read out. Tiny Rapids. Tim Beat. Luna Park also had a dancing pavilion. Tony Ryder's Monkey Circus, I can only... Oh. Uh, Bellakini's Temple of Mirth, which was a fun house that was described as a crazy house. An outdoor skating rink, the House of Hilarity. Is that where they do comedy also? Yeah, it was like an open mic. There was two vaudeville theaters. There was a balloon ride called The Big Captive. There's a circle swing, which is my absolute favorite ride. What's a circle swing? You hang on the like the hanging, it, oh, and it, and it spins you around. Yeah. Like they have it the, or they used to have it at the California They Adventure? still have it there, yeah. Okay. It's like orange. The theme. one that breaks all the time? Stop. What, because they launch people out into the yeah. pond? No. People oh, use it as a way to escape to get into Disneyland. Ah. Jump. Jump, 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 jump. And they added more animals. Winnie the, the Pooh will cat me. <laughs> Catch me. Cat me. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh will cat you if he catches you trying to sneak in. That's his job there. That's how he keeps his job. He's security. Enforcer. Don't let him find your honey, whatever that means. They added more Brain animals honey. to the zoo. <laughs> He's a zombie, by the way. They added more animals to the zoo. No more boxing bears. Honey. They added an elephant and several camels. Imagine being in a part of California where you could just see an elephant. Like you just pay like 25 cents. Well, well there's, there's a zoo. zoo but <laughs> Opening day of Luna Park was on June 10th of 1911. And they saw an evening crowd of about 16,000 honest folk. They also howled free daily entertainment. They had shows like the Wild West show, which is weird to me because the Wild West was only like 40 years yeah, before that. They were in the Wild West. Yeah, it's it's like us having like a World War II show in the 80s. Like, like we, okay, <laughs> we, we had Hogan's Hero in the 80s. Um, see, that's weird to me. Hogan's Heroes? Yeah, Hogan's Heroes is weird. It's weird that they didn't give a lot of time before they're like, let's make a TV show about this. Well, even let the listener know, oh, in these boy. months I've been watching a lot of Monty Python, and there that was the late 60s and early 70s, and like every other joke is about Nazis, and okay. like in full Nazi uniform, and this was 20 years after it the was, events. It was still not gross yet it yeah. was so kind of cool yeah, it, was, it yeah. was so cool it was so cool it was so cool when terry gilliam dressed up as a nazi if you dress up like a nazi in 1951 i think people would get it <laughs> over the next year they kept adding and replacing it's cool again now <laughs> over the next year they kept adding and replacing rides of pretty much the same caliber trying to spark more interest and get more families to come through without really having to do much work they could have attracted a lot of people this is around the time that agricultural park closed spoiler alert whether it was a financial failure or not is hard to say according to the first-hand researchers that did the real work on this but luna park <laughs> was sold in September of 1912 to a syndicated company listed in one reading as the Los Angeles, get ready for the word, Negroes, with the intention of using in the park. Why'd you have to go there? I didn't, it's what they were called. It was the title of the syndication. These are Greg's views. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> right after the Nazi stuff too, this does not look good. This doesn't look good. Rewind it all. Rewind it all. I'm going to change it to, I don't know, socialists. <laughs> Democratic socialists. They got the park with the intention of turning the park into a place where the African-American community can go and have fun for the day and not have to deal with the segregation <laughs> and only get to go to the pool one day out of the week. They would have been worthy of celebration if it had worked, but it did not. And they had to sell the park in December of that year to Harry Barry. <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie Mayer who was a bear <laughs> who was, used to be a boxer in the park he got promoted because he won so many fights <laughs> what's your name Harry Barry but, hey Marvin Barry <laughs> you know that new cousin of, it was a Harry Barry my cousin yeah it is actually you know that new bear boxer you're looking for <laughs> is it Harry my cousin 
Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know him. He's a good man. He comes highly recommended. Good bear. Don't let him get near the sauce. They were owners. The honey sauce? Yeah, don't let him get near honey. Winnie the Pooh was a bear. And so much brain damage from all those fights. Harry Barry and Eddie Mayer were owners of a local <laughs> brewery and a baseball team. These two guys knocked down all the buildings and the rides, and then the Shoots Baseball Park took over everything when Washington Park was erected, which was an even more fitting baseball park with a genuine infield and vast, accurate dimensions. What wasn't used as a ballpark became the Horsley and Bostic Zoo, which opened in 1914. The amusement park area closed in 1914. Baseball is now what that park is mostly remembered for. Hastling and Bosley... Zoo? Horsley and Bostic Zoo was the zoo. That? It was zoo. I imagine with the remaining. It was, zoo. It, was a, it was zoo. It was zoo and I. It was a park with the remaining animals, I suppose, and it was used up in the part of the lot that baseball didn't need. They're like, well, we have a duck out, and we have bleachers, and then behind us is a bunch of lions. <laughs> They're not out. getting those foul balls. That's where the sand lot came from. <laughs> the beast, which is actually a lion. Don't get the ball. Don't get the ball. Please don't get the ball. No, you're not imagining. It's bad. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna do my next one now. This is a sad one. It makes me very sad. Okay. I'm going to be talking about Marine Land now. Okay. Marine Land of the Pacific. Nothing about it. I still don't know anything about it. I was hoping you knew everything. That's something I riffed my way through it. <laughs> I was hoping to talk about that was bears some more. I thought that would carry me. So give a man to fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to build a fish-based amusement park and he'll probably end up the subject of a documentary about a marine animal abuse. <laughs> oh my god. You had me at abuse? <laughs> Long before the events of Blackfish, when the only trick a whale was used for was being made into candles and perfume, a sea creature-based amusement park opened up in 1938 named marine land that location you guessed it florida it was started yeah, i think you're doing something wrong about this research no, no i'm this one's about epcot center <laughs> it was started by a man named Ilya tolstoy no relation oh wait no yes no. relation is there? This is Leo Tolstoy's grandson. Really? And he started an amusement park in Florida, United States of America. About about whales. I can see a connection. <laughs> Everything I remember about Tolstoy. <laughs> it was the best of parks. It was the worst of parks. Is that Tolstoy? <laughs> no, that's Dickens. Is it? Then what, what? I gotta look that up now. What did Tolstoy write? He wrote War and Peace. Is that War and Peace? It's not War and Peace. Isn't it? Oh, maybe I'm thinking of A Tale of Two Cities. I'm thinking of A Tale of Two Kitties. It's A Tale of Two Cities. Who wrote A Tale of Two Cities? Was it Tolstoy? It's Dickens. Oh, how yeah. does War and yeah. Peace start? It was the best of war. It was the worst <laughs> of war. He did okay. write War and Peace, but he also wrote uh, Anna Karenina. Na 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 Okay, so that was too long to find that. Hey, I wanted. I couldn't move on without knowing that. So the Leo Toy Leo Toy Story's grandson, his partner was Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney of the Vanderbilt family. Oh my God, what is this? Yeah, their park in Florida was so successful that they decided to try out a West Coast location and. Ilya Tolstoy himself came out to LA and started scouting around for a good location. A Tolstoy was a Tolstoy in LA. Tolstoy was in LA. Yeah. Tolstoy too. The, clearly, this is the worst of times. Nah, it's not even him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know what Tolstoy wrote. So the area he found, it was right on the water in Palos Verdes. The $3.5 million construction began on June 1st, 1953. And on August 28th, 1954, Marine Land of the Pacific opened to 15,000 visitors. The following week was declared Marine Land of the Pacific Week and it was off to the races. Fish races, that is. The park itself... <laughs> they get very confused. They lose interest real quick. The park itself featured three sections designed by our old friend William Pereira. So one of the things there was a 12-unit motel. One was the main building and one was the Catalina Room, which overlooked the ocean and I assume Catalina Island. This was the setting of hundreds of weddings and parties over the years. There was also a Porpoise Room Cocktail Lounge and the Marineland Restaurant, which had seashells and starfish all over the ceiling. Still living. There was a 250-foot 
long pier that they built out into the ocean to dock their capture boat, which was called the Geronimo. They captured some 4,000 fish of 250 different species and 110 mammals of 11 species. To house their prisoners, they had two giant tanks that had fresh seawater pumped in and out of them at 2,000 gallons every minute. One of these was 250 feet wide and could hold a million gallons of water, making it the world's largest holding tank at the time. Wow. That's pretty modest. Everything you've said, I'm like, after doing all this research, I'm like, that sounds expensive. Pumping water in and out? Expensive. (laughs) We gotta raise the prices. (laughs) Little kitty's butts in here. (laughs) Maybe we can make a, you know, a dolphin fight a lion or something. (laughs) So one of the tanks was heated for non-native fish and one was unheated for native fish. Um, And then you could eat the heated one. (laughs) Like really heated. Like crabs are in there. Like a hot pot? (laughs) This was the world's largest hot pot. (laughs) Don't touch it. Yeah, touch it. There were stadiums around these tanks that could hold 1,500 fish lovers with 1,500 more windows beneath the surface spread across three floors to view what they called the Mansion of the Deep to watch all the animals changing their clothes. Ooh. There were underwater feeding shows. There was the Sea Arena where they staged porpoise games and a seal circus. Later on in 1966, they built the Sky Tower that could take 60 people at a time up 314 feet for a 360 degree view of the beautiful ocean and okay palace verdes they started selling their own line modest (laughs) modest (laughs) they started selling their own line of aquarium products called marine land aquarium products and when they opened they were only the second oceanarium ever to open in the united states but they were the largest in the world oh wow okay they are also considered to be california's first major theme park what you were talking about was an an amusement amusement park park. this was a theme park unless you could consider birds and beer the theme of bush gardens no this was they didn't stray far from it (laughs) this was before bush gardens there's before bush gardens I have riffing. No, we'll just have riff tracks at the end. We can do commentary on these episodes. <laughs> so now, even though they had a porpoise, they still felt like they were missing a purpose. You wrote that down. Did Microsoft Word didn't flag it? Clippy, get out of here. I know what <laughs> yeah, I'm doing. I know what I'm do- <laughs> you're like Luke turning off the computer. Daniel, your your joke censoring system is off. What's wrong? <laughs> Nothing. I know what I'm doing, Clippy. It's funny. People it's will fun. like it. It's funny. Use the edit button. <laughs> anyway, that missing purpose was to have a whale in captivity. That oh. was their purpose. It was fine having dolphins and the like, but if you really wanted to draw in crowds, you had to have a giant whale. Just ask Pinocchio or that guy from the Bible. If you want to draw in the crowd, you really had to commit a crime against the ocean we all commit crimes against the ocean where do you think your trash goes friend huh where do you think it goes when you flush them down the (laughs) sewer in 1957 the geronimo being manned by great sailor names frank bracado and boots caladrino they caught a pilot whale off the coast of catalina that was promptly given the name bubbles she was 12 feet long and weighed 1600 pounds she was the first pilot whale ever to be caught and kept alive in captivity and was trained to perform in shows and build as the world's first trained performing whale the bubble show is really what put them over the edge and boosted their attendance and the money brought in from bubbles is what allowed them to build the $500,000 sea arena which had the porpoise games in 1958 bubbles was rewarded with a statue in front and all the captivity she could handle (laughs) they got a couple other pilot whales too named squirt and bimbo but in 1964, two-thirds of the Earth was changed forever when SeaWorld opened in San Diego. And just how fish gave way to dolphins who gave way to pilot whales, suddenly the hot new thing was the bigger, scarier orca. SeaWorld started their Shamu show in 1965 in Marineland, which was just a couple hours north. They now had to have an orca or get left behind. And for three years, they were, until 1968, Marineland finally managed to capture an orca. He weighed 14,000 pounds and was named Orky. Then, just a year later, on December 11th, 1969, a four-year-old female orca was captured, who they named Corky. She eventually grew to be 8,000 pounds, 
Orky, the male whale, um, with a lot of tail. <laughs> he was described as being very proud and often moody. He had a reputation of shoving his trainers around when he was annoyed, which he would warn them beforehand by his eyes would turn blood red Oof! when he got angry and then he'd push you. The Hulk of whales, but he doesn't need to grow anymore. He's just always in the Hulk state. That's my secret. I'm always whale. <laughs> the one thing I know about the stupid Avengers. It's not stupid, it's great. <laughs> in, it's stupid. In 1970... <laughs> <in 19> <laughs> uh, I said it's stupid. In 1970, he pinned one of his trainers underwater for four minutes and nearly killed them. Corky, on the other fin, was more easygoing. She was shy at first, but once she warmed up, she was very playful and required a lot of attention. She'd play hide-and-seek with the trainers. With they like they'd tap on different parts of the glass, and then she'd run over... Not run, but she'd yeah. swim over the noise. Uh, she could run on water, though. <laughs> she had legs. Hide-and-seek and drownings were all fine, but if the park wanted to up the ante even more, they'd need more orcas. And just their luck, Orky was a male. More orcas. <laughs> Next thing, super orcas. <laughs> orcas who can box. And Corky was a female get out so their new training was how to get jiggy with it gross on february 28 1977 corky had her first child making it the first live orca to be born in captivity however after a few days corky started getting mean with the baby and kept attacking her so they moved it into its own tank and the baby died just a couple days later it lived for 16 days in all corky and orky had six babies all of them died i don't know if that's just how whales are or it's whales in captivity yeah. but it probably didn't help that they found out years later that Orky and Corky were cousins. Uh, I just heard a banjo in my head. <laughs> Underwater banjo. Blah, 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 blah. Gross. All of this is gross and it's yeah. really upsetting me. It's going to get a lot more upsetting. No. Uh, <laughs> is that how stories work? <laughs> Trigger warning, which is another whale they had. With only a couple orcas and facing competition from SeaWorld and another amusement park called Disney something that were both within a couple hours away, attendance started dripping. <laughs> Dipping, but dripping is still funny. <laughs> it seems like I should have, I meant to write dripping. Clippy, clippy. How'd you let that one go? <laughs> Please, sir, don't untangle me. In the early 60s, they were getting a million visitors a year, but by the late 60s, the place was looking run down, and by the early 70s, it was becoming too expensive to operate the park, and this is when the great parade of changing hands again comes. Oh, 1971, it was sold to the Hollywood Turf Club, which were the people who owned Hollywood Park. Then they, in turn, leased the park to 20th Century Fox, who ran it until 1977, when it reverted back to the Turf Club, who then sold it in October of that year to the Kroger Company of Ralph's fame oh, wow. and also to Taft Broadcasting. They sold it for $5 million. Now, Taft Broadcasting also owned Hanna-Barbera. So on October 31st, 1977, they closed down the park for remodeling and gave the worst Halloween scare to many of their employees and laid them off. Then on May 20... <laughs> on May... Uh, trick. <laughs> the treat is your permanent vacation. The treat is this pink slip. Don't eat it. You'll need it's, it. It's strawberry flavored. Then on May 20th, 1978, they reopened under the new name Hanna-Barbera's Marine Land, and the park's mascots became Hanna-Barbera characters, Yay. a la Knott's Berry Farm with the peanuts. They also added something called the Family Adventure Swim, the Baja Reef that you could snorkel in, mm -hmm. and a Marine Animal Care Center. Did they have a Jabberjaw? Uh, they had to have had i don't know if they had sharks though how could you not have sharks yeah call them in the 50s and tell them to have a shark instead <laughs> uh, of hello uh, whales 50s 50 no this is the 70s sorry i called the wrong number <laughs> <laughs> so with Hanna barbera the, it boosted their attendance back up for a while but in 1981 they sold to a hong kong company it was hong kong fooey uh Hanna barbera yeah yeah 
How fitting. They didn't like that character. They sold. Well, the- why? He was the number one super guy. He's also a janitor. <laughs> What's not to like? Yeah. They sold to this Hong Kong company named Far East Hotels and Entertainment Limited. That's a dumb name. Uh, no, it's catchy. That. They said they were going to update the whole park, but ended up just giving it a new coat of paint. And this is where the story gets cruel and heartbreaking. So uh, the park changed hands again, but this time to someone who had had his eyes on it for a long time. The company was a book publishing firm named Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. The man was the titular William Jovanovich. He was from Montenegro and it showed. (laughs) He brought a Yugoslavia at war mentality to the business world of America. He was not well liked of of a businessman at at all. He was 80s capitalism at its finest. Gordon Gecko. Yeah. In one incident, he was known for he had lunch with a lower level official in his company who didn't get along with his boss of that division. So Jovanovic encouraged him to overthrow the boss and take over that division. And this guy didn't want to do that. So Jovanovic put his hand on him and told him, you know, if we were guerrillas fighting each other in the hills of Yugoslavia during World War II, I'd kill you in 15 seconds. <laughs> well, you know, if I was a boxing bear, I'd hit you right in the jaw and you go down. Right in the jabber jaw. The jabber jaw. <laughs> I'd hit you right in the honey pot. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah. We sca- didn't, I didn't address how scary that was. Scary man. A few days later, Jovanovic fired all the top management in his general books division in what became known as the Monday Massacre. He also had no public relations department in the company so that he was inaccessible to the public. But on top of being a book publisher in 1976, his company dished out $51 million and bought SeaWorld. Now, this was a time when SeaWorld was planning to open up a new location in San Antonio. So they needed more of what they were famous for. Shamus. 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 They needed as many orcas as they could get. The problem was in 1972, they passed the Marine Protection Act, which made it illegal to capture sea animals from the wild to put in amusement parks and the like. So SeaWorld had to rely on breeding the orcas that it already had. San Diego already had three orcas, but as we know, breeding in captivity was tricky and it wasn't working. By the mid 80s, there were only five captive orcas in the country not owned by SeaWorld. There was one at the Miami Seaquarium, two at Marine World, Africa, USA, and Vallejo, California. But both... Hmm. I guess just whitewash history. Sorry, my Zodiac trigger went off. I know that. (laughs) But both of those females in Vallejo, they were female. Both oh. of those females were female. And then, uh, explain that one more time. <laughs> then there was Orky and Corky, and they were the only proven breeding couple. So those were the ones left in the country. On top of that, in April 1986, Winston the Orca died at SeaWorld, Florida, and he was the only male breeder any of those parks had. So suddenly, Orky was the only breeding Orca in captivity in the country and it, maybe it, the world. Boy, it's it sounds great, <laughs> it's, but it's a lot of work. SeaWorld had offered to buy them, Orky and Corky, repeatedly yeah. over the years for anywhere between $1 to $2 million but every time they were rejected because they were the centerpiece of marine land like yeah. they wouldn't function without them yeah. but now the park was so desperate and it was time to shake fins with the devil shark <laughs> on December 30th 1986 the park was sold to Jovanovich's company HBJ for 23.4 million dollars Marineland convinced themselves that this was a good thing because HBJ spent lavishly on SeaWorld and Marineland really needed money yeah. they were even told before the deal that their plan was to pump $750,000 into the park for repairs and not that much would change that included Jovanovich's reputation. All he ever wanted from Marineland were Corky and Orky, yeah. and that became very clear very fast. On January 12th, so keep the timeline. This was December 30th. It was sold. John, okay. On January 12th, a memo went out in the park that on the 20th, the Orca Stadium was going to be closed for repairs. Then on the 19th, they got a new memo saying that on the 20th, the whole park was going to be closed because the two Orcas are going to be transferred to SeaWorld San Diego. They're no longer <sighs> Marineland property. All employees were forbidden 
from telling anybody or else they'd be fired. And in the middle of the night on January 20th, 1987, the Orca tank was mostly drained so that they had nowhere to hide. And Orky was craned out. And Orky and Corky had lived together for 18 years at this point. So when Orky started getting taken, Corky freaked out and she started, she jumped into the stretcher with him and both of them were crying. The whales oh, were crying. And uh, I, fortunately or unfortunately, they took both of them. So they put them on a truck and drove them down to San Diego. The reason HBJ gave for moving them in the middle of the night was because the caravan would have taken up too many lanes of traffic. And the reason they gave for taking them, period, was that SeaWorld needed them to breed. Of course, it did not sit well with anybody. No. People working at the park didn't like it, of course. Fans of the park didn't like it and the city of Palos Verdes felt betrayed. Marineland brought a lot of money into the area, and without Orky and Corky, the park's not going to survive. HBJ insisted that they'd replace the Corky and Orky shows with the Bubbles and Bangles, the Pilot Whale show. But Pilot Whales what, weren't... to shout cash for Bubbles? Come on. What, throw away my paycheck to see Bubbles? Come on, what is this? No one wants to see Pilot Whales. I want to see that, that sexy black and white. <laughs> Citizens to Save Marineland was formed, and hundreds protested what was happening. LAUSD schools threatened to boycott HBJ published textbooks and several schools in California like the English department at El Camino College actually did. Mm -hmm. Johnny Carson was making jokes about HBJ on The Tonight Show. It was a public relations catastrophe. They went back on their own given reason for moving the orcas and now they said that they had been in danger at Marineland because the tank was too small. In response, an open letter from a protester in the LA Times said, I have a proposal. Why not put William Jovanovich and Orky in the same tank and may the best species win? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. The situation was spiraling out of control and things got worse from there. Six days after the whale transfer, the city council met and demanded to HBJ that if they're going to close down the park, they have to have a plan for redevelopment within 30 days and it would have to be torn down within two years. HBJ's response... Two days later, Marineland employees were told the park would be closing its doors forever wow. on March 1st. Jeez. So this is within two months. Two months. Or three months. The company said that renovating the park would cost $25 million, but to justify that cost, attendance would have to rise 50%. But they said that would be impossible without orcas, which they removed. <laughs> there was no winning. Then on February 3rd, Marineland general manager John Corcoran met at HBJ headquarters to discuss his role in the company after the park was then closed. Then he had to fight a gorilla. So he went to discuss his role where he was informed that he would have no role because he was fired. Oh boy. That same day back at Marineland, the marketing director came back from her lunch break to find her car blocked in by a security truck and when she went inside she was told that she and her entire division had to clear out their desk by 5pm that day and their cars were searched by security guards to make sure they didn't take any files with them. (sighs) Then on February 11th the remaining employees were gathered for a meeting in the Dolphin Arena but instead of dolphins on stage, it was a representative of SeaWorld flanked by two security guards with more security stationed all along the upper rim of the bowl. That's not a good show. No, it's a great show. (laughs) This is how James Bond villains take care of their employees. Everyone gathered here was told they were fired. Around 300 people lost their job all at once. A couple hours later, they found out that instead of closing on March 1st, like they originally said, the park was instead closing at 5 p.m. the next day. The reason being that they claimed to have received three bomb threats and it was no longer safe to operate the park. That was never confirmed by anybody other than them. People gathered outside the park on February 12th, 1987 to protest, but in the first promise they kept, the park closed forever at 5pm that day. So basically, Jovanovich and his company flat out lied about everything they said was going to happen, and they wanted to cut and run away from the situation quick. On February 24th, Jovanovich put the land up for sale and put his nicer son in charge of dealing with the rest of it as he receded back into his coffin of blood and (laughs) cocaine. On March 5th, they took down the iconic entrance sign, and on May 14th, it was sold to a developer 
developer from Arizona named James G. Monahan for $24.5 million, who planned to build a resort on the land that incorporated parts of what remained of the park, like the Baja Reef. One of Monahan's conditions for buying it was that HBJ had to give $3 million to help pay for a new marine animal care center that became named the Marine Mammal Care Center, which is still operating today on the Fort MacArthur grounds in San Pedro, which I, I went there once. Oh, I yeah? stumbled upon it. There's a bunch of seals. They That's bit me. Cool. They bit me. They told me it was my fault. <laughs> on February 11th, 1988, demolition began on the park. Most of the icons of the park were destroyed, including a big Wyland mural. Mm-hmm. The Catalina Room still stood and kept on being used for banquets, and the whale tail and two dolphin statues at the entrance stood for a while, but now they're kept in storage by the city of Rancho Palos Verdes. September 28th, 1989, HBJ sold off SeaWorld to a new company, Anheuser-Busch, for $1.1 billion. Crossover! (laughs) Crossover from a story from before! (laughs) In the same episode? 20 minutes ago. (laughs) The ruins... Yeah, 20 minutes is generous. The ruins... This is a modest episode today. (laughs) The ruins of Marineland stood for a couple decades. In June 1995, they tore down the Sky Tower because it was a hazard for planes flying around. People were warned, like, don't fly near the coast over there. You might hit the Sky Tower. Sky Tower, that thing that goes down. (laughs) The Marines from Camp Pendleton used the ruins to run amphibious landing drills three or four times a year. Imagine we turn into a fish, but we still got to (laughs) work. We're going to recreate the evolution of uh, humanity (laughs) three or four times a year. Camp Hollywood used it whenever it needed to also. (laughs) Film there was Baywatch, Lost, The O.C., MTV's Beach House, The Lost Boys Cave was below the park. Oh, They filmed Pearl Harbor, Spider-Man, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Rock, Charlie's Angels, The Aviator, and Con Air there. I like two of those things. (laughs) Charlie's Angels and Pearl Harbor. In June 2003, Rancho Palos Verdes finally approved the building of a $200 million resort there. And in July 2008, all that remained, including the Catalina Room, was torn down. And then on June 12, 2009, the Terranea Resort opened up after costing $480 million in the end. There's even a restaurant there called Nelson's, named after Lloyd Bridges' character, who is a trainer at Marineland on the show Sea Hunt, which ran from 1958 to 61. And it was filmed at Marineland. If you want to see it, go watch watch binge it that's the only way to watch yeah, you gotta watch it all at once yeah uh, you don't want to miss out on the conversation <laughs> you can also listen to our podcast talking sea hunt but what happened to all the animals scene hunt sorry go ahead <laughs> but what happened to all the man all the manimals they're fired the manimal i told you the manimals got fired all the animals once marine closed let's cut back to 1987 here's a heavy dose of sadness. February 18th, all remaining animals started to be shipped to their new home at SeaWorld, but not even this was handled well. The trainers at Marineland gave specific instructions for their individual animals, but SeaWorld did not listen. They begged them not to put one of their dolphins, Sundance, in with the other dolphins because he was a subdominant male. It was the Greg and Daniel of the pod, <laughs> and he wouldn't be able to defend himself. Of course, they put him in with the rest of them, and one day after he got there, another dolphin attacked him, and he died of a fracture skull and cerebral hemorrhage. Oh my god, they could do that? Dolphins are vicious, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I've been telling everybody. Nobody believes me, but dolphins are vicious. (laughs) Three days later, a female dolphin named Echo died, and soon after, so did two harbor seals and three other animals. SeaWorld accepted responsibility for Sundance's death, but the rest, they said, oh, they just got sick. Marineland trainers should have been there for the transition, but they wouldn't let them be there. As for the two that this whole war was fought over, SeaWorld tried to rename Orky and Corky to Shamu and Namu, but fans protested so much that they backed down and I believe they were the only orcas there to not perform under the names Shamu and Namu. However, SeaWorld had a much worse record with orcas than Marineland did. Orky had been living in Marineland for nearly 20 years. SeaWorld orcas lived an average of eight and a half years. So Orky didn't do 
so well there. And in 1988, he died. Corky, on the other hand, had pretty much became queen of SeaWorld. <laughs> like she dominated the whole place. When she first came in, she was kind of shy, as she is. Yeah, we know. But she was hated by another orca named Candu 5. It's a then, robot? Then it, yeah, it's a, it was the first robotic <laughs> orca. Wea. Did you say Waya? Waya. I was going to say Waya. Waya. A boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Candu 5 hates her. Yeah. August 1989. They're about to go on a show. Candu 5 charges at Corky, and Corky was so strong that Candu 5 fractured her own jaw on her, and that <sighs> sent a bone flying through her artery, and she bled to death. So oh that's my. the end of Can Do 5. God. <laughs> you don't mess with Corky. I guess not. This was the first instance of an orca ever attacking another orca. <laughs> then in a weird power move, Corky ended up raising Can Do 5's daughter as her own. <laughs> <laughs> Corky, queen of SeaWorld. Oh, Corky's wow. still alive. She's 52 years old. That's making her the oldest whale in any SeaWorld. She's yeah. the biggest female there. They call her the Beast. But she also has the kind of sad title of being the longest held captive orca in history. Yeah. Apparently, she knows that because in 1993, they f- they found her pod that she came from. And they recorded sounds of them talking and they played it for her. And when she heard it, she started shaking and she cried. Oh. That's Marine Land of the Pacific. Wow. I want to blow up SeaWorld <laughs> after I free all the animals. I want to free Orky or Corky. <laughs> Whichever one's there. You know, I don't even care. I lost interest in this story. <laughs> Let's pick it up a little. Oh, fine. Okay. Let's forget about sad stuff. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about Agricultural Park, which we talked about. Oh, my. Oh, boy. Agricultural Park. <laughs> we talked about this in the trolley episode. You're killing me, Larry, L-A-R-Y. So Agricultural Park was set up in the way, way back year of 1872 when the Southern District Agricultural Society, which I'm going to say the SDAS, purchased a 168-acre tract near present-day Figaro Street and Exposition Boulevard from the gentleman named James Thompson, who I I cannot find anything about. Now, this one's near USC. (laughs) Yes, this one is very close to USC. It is walking distance. The idea for the huge plot of land was to let the land serve as a farmer's fairground or a agricultural exposition. A farmer's market so big that your dumb hayseed head would explode. Uh, No, not my dumb hayseed head. (laughs) It's pretty strong. Do they have a hot sauce shop? I'll be there. (laughs) My head. Ouch. Ouch. (laughs) I don't believe it. (laughs) It's going to happen. My head. You have a pretty big head. With that, they can promote... With that, they can promote commercial farming through public exhibitions and educational programs. So the SDAS was comprised of 100 gentlemen who are well-connected with the building of the great city whose names I could not find in any kind of listing or roster. They each contributed about 100 to $500, which formed the capital of the stock of SDAS, but still it was not sufficient enough to establish an agricultural exposition. But by this point, they were already starting to exhibit locally grown produce and fruits, people showing off their corn, showing off their oranges, <laughs> showing off their wheat. Get a load of my corn. <laughs> my wheat is not modest. My corn crop not modest. Not modest at My all. My harvest was bountiful. <laughs> sometimes entering contests for who has the best. Sometimes a wager would be taken on whose corn would be considered the best. Who's, who is this? Is it Bill's? Is it Rick's? It's always Bill's. Bill has the best corn. <laughs> That's why they call him Bill. This wasn't getting a lot of attention, surprisingly. <laughs> Back to the SDAS. So being a private corporation in 1872, they couldn't secure aid from the state. So the next year, 1873, they got a loan for $5,000 and secured the same by mortgage from... Uh, money is flying fast and loose back then. That's they, too they, much money to be They didn't out. even know what to 
to do with it. <laughs> they weren't used to paper money yet. <laughs> they got a loan for $5,000 and secured the same mortgage by WWO Melvinie's property. Uh, yet another... Oh. Calif- yeah, oh, yet another. He has a park in Granada Hills. He has a street in Pacoima. Prove Weird. it. Mine's irrefutably true, but prove yours. Uh, no, I have a podcast. I don't need to prove everything. <laughs> My riffing is proof enough. A modestly successful. <laughs> Six years later, 1879, the mortgage foreclosed and a judgment entered a sum close to $9,000. The next year, the SDAS with some of its... Where mem- this money's coming from? Banks. Everything's banks. And then it leads to 1929. And how did we get here? <laughs> oh boy, how did we get I here? I understand the depression, man. <laughs> Just throwing money away. And like, oh, we're going to need all that back. <laughs> Ugh, boy. Do you accept corn? Bill's got the best corn. <laughs> Try Bill. <laughs> Try Bill. Bill, he Bill must corn. have the money. He has the best corn. The next year, SDAS, with some of its members gaining political and public stature, they came up with the idea that there should be a state organization whose purpose was to encourage the industries of the state with the overall plan of securing funds and aid from the state. They requested the legislature to pass a law dicing the states into districts and providing the organization of district agricultural associations. That doesn't matter at all. It's boring. <laughs> the greater Los Angeles area and most of Southern California would be District 6, thus forming the 6th District Agricultural Association, which I mentioned before because John G. Downey was a board member, so was J.E. Hollenbeck, who were big names in Los Angeles mm. history. Don't they have like a Hollenbeck burrito at Manuel's? Well, there's Hollenbeck Park, which is important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but there's probably a burrito somewhere <laughs> yeah there's probably something you can eat sure <laughs> sure, sure you could turn this into food don't worry <laughs> the group then got isaac n moore who was probably a member of the mm, sds there's some sort of a sushi <laughs> <laughs> more 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 sushi isaac moore he bought a property off the sheriff's sale after it was foreclosed upon after they had previously owned it and they got him to do it to hold on the title until they could figure out how to pay the rest of the outstanding claims off and have the property transferred to the sixth district agricultural association all of this was just trying for these guys to own this piece of land to have their corn show off they contests. like they managed to take something all the way to the state legislature just so it can come back <laughs> and they can buy something at a state sale and then like have this land like that's how badly they wanted it around this time the agricultural fairgrounds were starting to go belly up and the money they were getting wasn't really helping at all their plan for paying off their debts was to start surveying the property and selling off pieces of the land selling them off to investors for a hundred dollars for each section so the money was enough to redeem the property in august of 1880 then they managed to pay it back that they made the final payment of five thousand three hundred and forty seven dollars and ninety five cents it's a lot of corn it, it, <laughs> i mean bill was a little you know he, he had to work extra but he loves it that's <laughs> yeah, it's his that's, that's his zen it's his right passion there. yeah he's not in it for the money he's in it for the corn this property which they bought sold off the land yellow gold which is also gold. <laughs> which is also regular gold. So be careful what you ask for. <laughs> this area was now going to be called Agricultural Park. If you don't know, spoiler, is now Exposition Park. Mm-hmm. It's bordered by Exposition Boulevard, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, Figueroa Street, and Vermont Avenue. And the main entrance to Agricultural Park was on Wesley Avenue, which is between Hoover Avenue and Vermont, making me think that the park stretched out a little farther out. The entrance to the park was really great. It looks like Jurassic. It's just like a big wooden gate with these two big like... Uh, Are you about to say Jurassic Park? Yeah, I felt like I did. I feel like we haven't mentioned enough Jurassic Park. I got like another 20 minutes on it. That was on Wesley Avenue. So there's 130 investors put $100 each into Agricultural Park. Then there were 23 additional lots on the south and west perimeters of the park, which could be sold to enhance the park or help for the operations. So there was 153 lots that if they're not sold, they were on hold. So the remaining lots, which is of 167 more lots, that doesn't make any sense. I think they probably sold off the 23 lots that were remaining, plus the ones that they were like, oh, I don't know to do this other ones. So 30 lots. We'll say 30 lots. The math is starting to- I feel like you're having an argument with a city 
city council in your head right now. I have split personalities, but they're all council members. <laughs> the remainder of the property, which was set aside for actual agricultural purposes, was conveyed to the association in 1892. With the remaining lots, they began leasing out the space to the state for holding special events to drum up additional profits. And that's when the fun started. <laughs> it's not clear from my reading who initially started, how it started, or how it evolved. But by 4th of July, 1888, which is, I think, the same year that they trying to drum up business at Shoots Park when he had the Chinese Lantern Night. There were already sports activities and amusements happening at remaining lots of Agricultural Park. Let's also add that this area at the time was outside of the city limits, which is not Los Angeles, which means anything goes. <laughs> Westworld. It, I don't get the reference. Is it the Twin Peaks? <laughs> is it a Twin Peaks? Do they have coffee and pie in Westworld? Or you are the coffee and pie. I don't The coffee and pie became sentient. And uh, <laughs> people kept, uh, you know, fornicating with that all American pie. And they didn't like that. There were different contests such as pole vaulting, a football kicking, don't invite Lucy Van Pelt. <laughs> she will trick you and you'll feel dumb. You will exclaim good grief and you will slam <laughs> upon you, your back. As you fall to the ground. Arc. You're a blockhead. There was a hundred yard dashes. They were shot putting. I like shot put. Why? I don't know. Because I rarely get to see it when the Olympics are on. Like they show it once and I get excited because I never get to I see it. I thought you meant that you liked to do it. I like to try it. Yeah. I'd like to try it. <laughs> that could be another podcast we have. Yeah. Would you try things? And I go, boy, wow. I didn't think you would try that. Don't let Lucy Van Pelt around. <laughs> What'd you say? Nothing, nothing, Lucy. I read one entry saying that as early as 1879, when the park started to show signs of meandering, is when the prostitution and the gambling started forming in the avenues around oh, that surround the park. Keep in mind, neighboring USC opened in 1880, and it was originally affiliated with the Methodist Church when it opened. Mm-hmm. So I'd say early to mid-1880s is when all the crazy amusements started kicking in and went on till early 19 aughts. As I said in previous episode, Kill Me Larry, one of the first horse-drawn trolleys in the area, similar to the Shoots Park deal, would bring you directly to Agricultural Park. It was the Main Street and Agricultural they were Park right trolley. Next door to each other. They're two miles apart. It's not the same thing. <laughs> that trolley began running in 1875 and it was one of the city's first. The difference between Shoots Park and Agricultural Park, they're two miles apart. They could have fooled me. They, they must have at least shared a ticket. <laughs> I mean, two miles back then, I mean, I don't know how they measured stuff. I imagine the inflation of miles and was back then that was worth you know 10 feet they were run simultaneously the difference is when you caught different trolleys one would take you to a wholesome uh, amusement park and the other took you to a rowdy adult amusement park uh-huh. that boasted that it had the longest bar <laughs> still no estimate on how long nor are why there do, any photos of that why do people keep claiming that i've never seen a long bar i'm sure if i saw one I'd be like oh that's a long bar that's probably the longest <laughs> bar and i would get a little but bit how impressed. long could it possibly okay, be okay I, I think i'm figure this out so there was apparently a saloon underneath the four-story brick grandstand for the race there was a racetrack it was quite popular saloon i imagine that the longest bar must have ran alongside a racetrack a racetrack the length of a race uh, side of a racetrack i guess that's long i'd say that's a modest bar (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty long but i'm not like oh you want like horizon like yeah i I want to see the curvature of the (laughs) earth along this bar i want there to be a trolley that runs along the longest bar (laughs) to get from one end to the other and i have to pay a lot of money and i'm surprised at how long the trolley is taking like the sun is in a different space than it was the shadows have moved since i got on and the longest bar continues it was the longest of bars it was the shortest (laughs) of bars you know toaster wrote that (laughs) 
<laughs> Leon Toy Story? Prostitution was a thing that several articles yeah, reported without any of <laughs> it. It was a thing, all right. There's no official documents that I could find. I didn't go to Michael Holland, but I'm sure he would have had something. Yeah. But it was understood that there was a house of ill repute on site running out of a hotel. There was gambling of all sorts taking place with particular mentions of being nickel in the slot machines. Nickel in the slot Is machines. That a euphemism? Shut, shut up, it's a brothel. <laughs> Keep it quiet, there's naked people here. Please be quiet. Just try to remain calm, but it, no, not a lot of people were wearing clothes. And if they're wearing clothes, they might be backwards because they dress really quickly. <laughs> now, don't freak out. <laughs> but there might be a high heel in here. Now, you might have heard stories and you need to stay calm, but there might be a painted lady or two in here and you need to just stay calm, pretend like it's not a big deal. I don't know if you want to plug your nose, but you might smell perfume. And that particular scent, Jasmine. I hope you're not allergic. <laughs> that was the longest joke. <laughs> Let's say a trolley could have taken the from one side of the joke to the other. You can take a trolley in the form of the skip ahead 15 seconds button if you want to. Skip ahead twice. Like, they're still talking about this? Wow. Damn, we still are. Moving past it. So there was a racetrack that was built to encourage the breeding of horses. I said to encourage the breeding of horses but it mostly encouraged mm. gambling on races of all sorts of things as i said before horses dogs camels bicycles and cars one of the huge fans of the racetrack known outlaw wyatt earp along with really? yeah along with hundreds of students at usc now we're gonna get trigger warning to animal violence oh god how much animal violence is gonna i guess if you do amusement parks you're dead as gonna, yeah <laughs> is that what you're gonna say yeah that's what i was gonna say do you know what dog coursing is I didn't know either before I read this. Dog coursing was a huge hit at the park, and it's not what I like. <laughs> if you're not familiar, they released a terrified rabbit onto a field with different escapes it can flee to, but if it didn't make it to one of them, a pack of greyhound dogs would uh, rip it to shreds. Oh. This is a live-action rendition of Watership Down. <laughs> it was introduced to the park in 1897 by Francis Black, who was the name of a scary person, who was in one paper titled as the manager of Exposition Park. I don't know what that means. He did not own it over the city. That's gladiator coliseum nonsense. Dog coursing? people loved it not everyone though including the courts and the good natured human beings who aren't so broken from having to live through the 19th century that they need to watch something innocent die to feel something <laughs> but everyone else loved it and the article that I'm getting most of this from which was written by the wonderful Larry Harnish who I mentioned in the uh, take the walk episode we did who knows who killed Elizabeth Short take, take a walk. walk not take the walk take a walk I keep calling it take the walk, walk. it's a walk threat walk the plank it's a threat podcast <laughs> many stories noted that the finely dressed female spectators rather than being reserved and delicate mm. were more bloodthirsty than the men Yikes. Coursing was such a big hit that within four months, promoters reporting crowds of 2,500 generates in the park. Francis Black also ran a gambling operation at 143rd South Broadway Street that took bets on New Orleans and Oakland races, which was shut down. So they moved that gambling ring into Agricultural Park, which was then again shut down by the American Turf Association. Before we get into William Miller Bowen being a wet blanket and being a little tattletale, let's get into two things that happened at Agricultural Park that I think Bear mentioned that I think you might like. Bear a mention? Uh, boxing Bear mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um, November 1903. America's most famous race driver at the time, Barney Oilfield. <laughs> of course. His car, a Winton Bullet Number no. 2, which now sits in the National Museum of American History. It had one of the first inline eight-cylinder engines consisting of a two inline four-cylinder engines bolted together. It's this Adam Carolla show. In his mouth, cigar clenched in his teeth. Huh. Oilfield raced the Agricultural Park racetrack, completing a mile-long run on a dirt oval field in 55 seconds, a world record. 10,000 people in attendance and the headline the next day was Barney Oilfield's attempt to commit suicide at Agricultural Park yesterday. The Times reported it looked this way. A 
flash of white shirt down a back stretch, a dark streak on the horizon across the fields, a cloud of dust far up the track, and before you can lean over the rail to see, a rushing mighty wind swashing by under Ooh, the wire. A mighty wind. Fred Willard's. What? what? <laughs> he walks in. What's happening? You look over the rail and you say, what happened? <laughs> what happened? And everyone began to shout. This is what it was like to watch Barney Oliel's field do a mile in 55. Is that good now? Like, is that imp- still impressive? I don't think is so. That, like, he made a trip across the Atlantic and four months. Yeah, I think that's what, it's more like that. It's like in, in what, 1903? Okay, next. September of 1906, Agricultural Park, a mile of train track was laid out. In a previous mention on this podcast when we're talking about it, I mentioned that they had a demolition derby there and you questioned <laughs> it and you were right to do it. I didn't know what they meant and now I do. <laughs> oh no, I think I see where this is going. Agricultural Park was the scene of a staged train collision. Whoa. Two 10-wheel locomotives were purchased which were due to be scrapped but still operational. A mile of track was laid out for ramming speed. <laughs> the charge of admission was a dollar. Eight bits? There was no grandstand for this event, but they roped off the audience. At least they were safe. <laughs> 200 or so special police were hired to control 25,000 people who came to watch oh two trains collide. I would... I'd watch it. I would love to watch yeah. that. In one corner, engine number 13, which had the advantage of weight, 21 tons of soft coal and 3,500 gallons of water, is predicted by her engineer, P.M. Raymond, that this is the old beast that will remain upright to the very end. The <laughs> other corner, I want this on a shirt. Number 23, the Skadoo, <laughs> as she's called by her engineer, N.P. Stancer, a well, tough tw- old girl. Choo-choo. 23 Skadoo. <laughs> 23 Skadoo. Skadoo came from the east and had a little more headway. <laughs> and number 13 was not far behind engine, roaring, steam whistling out, wheezing, keeping mind the trains were only going by 55 miles per hour which would insult sammy hagar but the minutemen would say it's not about the double nickels the question is are they trains joke that only i get um choo choo by the way both engineers were boarded on the trains until the last second when they had to yeah, jump off to safety oh jump into the dirt yeah ju- jump into the debris as it's blowing up <laughs> the crowd that's right there will catch you the two trains crashed into each other i'm gonna read a passage from this article from donald duke which is not david duke like i was like what called wreck of the he century there was a roar and a jarring shock as the two iron horses rest for an instant, then all of a sudden each was hidden in a deafening roar of pent-up steam and gnarled, twisted mass of iron and steel was hidden from view. Nothing but chaos of twisted boilerplate. So after the crash, after the hit, all these thousands of people watched these two trains hit each other at 55 miles per hour. 10,000 people swarmed the wreckage looking for souvenirs from the crash. <laughs> That's us. That would be like, I want the 23 Skidoo thing. That sounds so interesting. It sounds pretty cool. So the downfall of the agricultural park for this, we have to go back to 1898 to a stern, probably joyless 37-year-old old man named William Miller Bowen, an attorney and a devout Methodist who taught a Sunday school nearby at the University Methodist Church. Now, he had noticed that his students on Sundays were not showing up as often. It was becoming a problem because he's like, ah, they're not at church. They're not praying. Check the conventionals. They're not in the, no, 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 there. So alarmed, one day Bowen followed some of his students to an area that was walking distance to the church, and it was Agricultural Park. And he could not believe what he was seeing. There was drinking, there was whoring, there was gambling, there was trains fighting, there was rabbits being mauled by dogs. This amusement area was undoing all of his Sunday school work. <laughs> what he saw on the south side Sodom and Gomorrah was enough to set into motion a 10-year-long plan to cast Agricultural Park into the shadows from whence it came. He knew that he had to take the park out of the hands from the immoral owners and entrepreneurs who owned it, and he knew that he could start by disputing the legitimate use of the land. He rallied support for his cause from the church, school officials such as George Bovard, head of the board of trustees at USC and by George Burns. Yeah, George Burns. Gracie was there, but she doesn't make a lot of sense. By 1903, Bovard was the president of the university and an attorney friend named Howard Robertson. There was a reverend named Francis Larkin and neighborhood advocates who hated the park. All these people joined Bowen in trying to get this park dismantled. Bowen and his cronies unleashed a marathon of lawsuits on the owners with the set purpose of reclaiming the land, all 160 acres of it. There was a win in 1899 when he 
persuade city leaders to annex the track of land that is now Exposition Park, spoiler, and make it part of the Los Angeles, part of the city. Now that the park was under city jurisdiction, Bowen could start transforming the property, seeing that he also, at this point, was on the city council, a seat held from 1900 to 1904, the last two years of which he served as president of city council. He then also served as an attorney from the 6th District Agricultural Association, which who owned the land. So in that position, he could start affirming the state's ownership of the land. So he like did what you're supposed to do. You got into the system and then you reworked it. This case was taken to the court in 1904 and 1908. They ended up winning a lawsuit against the owners. And that was that basically. In 1910, all the saloons and brothels were torn down and the entire park was being restructured. This area of LA was so sleazy and fun that its reversal had to be aggressively nerdy and square, which is why those <laughs> spots were the racetrack and the grandstand and the longest bar and the brothel hotel and the saloons and the ghosts of the rabbits. Now what stands in that place is the National Guard Armory. Turned the- into the longest pew instead <laughs> of the longest bar. The National History Museum is there and the Sunken Rose Garden, which in my head, I'm like, is it underwater? But no, it's just like below <laughs> ground. It's like five steps below ground and they boast 15,000 rose bushes. In 1913, this area was dedicated as Exposition Park with the breaking of a bottle of Owens River water from the new aqueduct because stealing water from Owens Velling is somehow not as bad as gambling. <laughs> and that's Agricultural <laughs> Park. Let's get back from the past and go back into the past. <laughs> Disneyland. Churros. Friend. Dole Whips. The LA River. <laughs> Friend, I hate it. Break it, dude. That's Orange County. There, I believe you're mistaken. <laughs> that place that's best known as the thing that distracts you as you drive down the 5 freeway wasn't originally going to be deep in the thralls of OC Meekly. It was almost built right here in slightly less sunny Los Angeles. No. Enter a yet-to-be-frozen head named Walt Disney. <laughs> you know what he did from our animation episode. But on top of all that, he was also really into trains. Best known for being a train lover. <laughs> he would have cried if he saw those two collide. <laughs> but they were so beautiful. The skidoo. You ruined it. <laughs> when he was a kid, his family's farm in Missouri had a Santa Fe railroad track running through it, and he made a lot of cherished memories watching that train and listening for it coming. Cut to 1931. Walt has a nervous breakdown, and he was told by his doctor that he needed a hobby. Naturally, he took up polo, and then in 1938, he got a horrible back injury playing polo. <laughs> and his doctor told him he needed a safer hobby. But it's polo or nothing with Walt Disney, so it wasn't until 1945 that one of his animators, Ward Kimball... <gasps> I love Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball invited Walt to a party at his house in San Gabriel, and Walt saw that... He lived on Millionaire's Row. <laughs> he had a small steam train that Kimball had running through his backyard. Walt was blown away by this, and he ended up getting a model electric train set, and he kept adding attachments to it more and more until he had created this entire world of miniatures around the model train that took up the entire office next to his. Oh he sounds like Gomez Adams. What I see in my head is Gomez Adams. Yeah. The less uh, anti-Semitic version, <laughs> allegedly. He had towns and scenes, and then he started putting things like animatronic dancers around the train. Jeez. Then he got an idea of sharing this contraptionarium with the public and touring it around the country as Disneylandia. The farthest this plan got was that one scene from the set called Granny Kincaid's Cabin was displayed at the Festival of California Living at the Pan Pacific Auditorium in November 1952. However, Walt's ambitions had already outgrown this world of miniatures. He was interested in expanding and changing the very nature of what Disney, the company, did. But what could that mean? Snuff films? (laughs) I don't know. Let's try it for a while and see what happens. Let's just see. Let's just (laughs) see. Who said an 8mm? A few things converged onto Walt's mind at once. First, around this time was when the other studios in town, such as Universal, were letting visitors come to tour their back lots and see how movies were made. Problem was, Disney dealt exclusively in animation, so there really wouldn't be anything for visitors to see other than a bunch of sweaty losers drawing pants for a mouse. (laughs) 
<laughs> it wouldn't have caught anybody's eye. A bunch of veterans just trying to make a living throwing shoes on ducks. In their madness. <laughs> the second thing, as any Disney or Griffith Park enthusiast will drop their firstborn child to tell you, Walt used to take his daughters to the merry-go-round at Griffith Park on Saturdays. Uh, no. <laughs> I wanted to tell you that. The bench he sat on is now at Disneyland, and he decided, in his words, what this country really needs is an amusement park that families can take their children to. Amusement parks before Disneyland were kind of gross and sketchy, like uh, Shoots Park and that uh, sort of thing. Yeah, gross. Uh, what? They were more like pop-up carnivals. I'm talking about Shoots Park. Have you heard of Shoots the Shoots? <laughs> I'm also talking about Agricultural Park. You know, the place where there's prostitutes everywhere. Going back to Disney's quote, they've gotten so honky-tonk with a lot of questionable characters running around and they're not you too safe. Snob. They're not well kept. I want to have a place that's as clean as anything could ever be and all the people there are first-class citizens and treated like guests. What a snob. You know, I want a park where I can charge every member of the family about $100. <laughs> the final thing that sparked the fire in Disney's mind was that kids kept writing into Disney saying they want to see where Mickey Mouse lived. So, as early as 1932, Walt had intentions on building a nice family park with statues of Mickey and his friends around for people to go visit. He sent out a team to look all over the area to see what spots would be best for a park like this. They were looking in Chatsworth at one point, apparently. But the spot they decided would be best was in an empty lot right across the street from their studio on Riverside and Buena Vista against the river. In 1939, he officially asked for plans to be made up by Bob and Bill Jones from the character model department for what was referred to as the Riverside Drive theme park project. What was their names? Bob and Bill Jones. Ring a bell? No. Well, here they are. You don't remember me? <laughs> this birth- is your life. Go ahead. <laughs> I gave birth to you and now you don't remember me. <laughs> now we need money. <laughs> they came up with a main... Sh- this is what they had. A Main Street Promenade, a Snow White Dark Ride, oh. a Bavarian Village, and of course, a train and a carousel. And then World War II hit and all imagination got turned into bullets. By the time Nazism subsided forever and never to return, Walt was back on his idea for a park in Burbank. He would pace that area, measuring it out and imagining what it could be turned into. So he used to walk around there. They added to the plans an old town square, a city hall, a fire station, an opera house, a movie theater, and old cars, and it was officially given a name, Mickey Mouse Park. It seems he might have proposed the idea in 1948 to the city of Burbank, but they weren't interested. But like any man from the 40s, no didn't mean no, and his plans got even more ambitious. In 1951, he got an artist named Harper Goff. No? No. Well, here he- <laughs> <laughs> I gave birth to you too. <laughs> so he got Harper Goff to revise what the park would be. A lot of which will, a lot of, a lot of which, he's related to Tolstoy story. <laughs> a lot of which of these things will sound familiar. Now it would stretch over 11 acres and the Main Street area would have a drugstore soda fountain, a toy store, a toy repair shop, a doll hospital. <laughs> Pee-pee, Sue won't stop peeing. She's got a UTI. Rate. <laughs> Give her cranberry juice. <laughs> and yell at her, make her feel bad. There was a magic shop, a hobby shop, a bookstore, music store, clothing store, candy shop, a post office, and a store where Disney artists could sell their personal work. Oh, that'd be pretty great. That'd be really cool. Ward Kimball, draw me farting. (laughs) No, kid. (laughs) No, get out. A horse-drawn carriage would take you from the main street to a western town. (laughs) Oh my god. This is where Westworld started. They had cowboy shops, ponies, a donkey pack train, a movie theater that showed only westerns, and a small native settlement of teepees. That you could raid as (laughs) a cowboy. You could kill anything. It won't hurt. (laughs) 
you could sell the children as for slaves if you wanted to. <laughs> They're not real. You could take advantage of anything. Don't worry about this it. This is where you get that weird imperialistic aggression out. So then from there, you could take a carriage either to a place called Granny's Farm, which had an old mill pond, or to a traditional carnival area. I know which one sounds like more fun. Also around the park... I want to go to the old pond. Please? Frankenstein's picking flowers there. <laughs> I'd like to ride that ride. <laughs> also around the park would be a display of Victorian homes, a petting zoo, a circus, a train, an island surrounded by a lake with riverboats and a paddle wheeler, a submarine, a spaceship ride, a haunted house, and a very Thunder Mountain-like roller coaster. Cool. The opera house would also be a movie theater that would be used for radio and TV broadcasts. Ooh. By the time Walt officially presented the plans to the Burbank Parks and Recreation Board in March 1952, it would have cost $1.5 million and was now going by the name Disneyland. Okay. The board approved their plans, but when they proposed it to the Burbank City Council, their far-sighted response was, we don't want the carny atmosphere in Burbank. Oof. We don't want people falling in the river or merry-go-round squawking all day long. Get that damn mouse out of here. <laughs> what, what did they, what? You're going to talk to me like this? <laughs> you know who I am? I've got cousins, okay? And they're very dangerous people. You want to talk about people falling in the river? You might want to look out for your own shoes because they're going to be made of cement soon. Because I'm the steamboat. I'm the steamboat, Willie. You steamboat might know captain. me. Oh, I hate that stupid mouse. Anyway, the plans were dead. Uh, Walt always suspected that it was people from his own studio who were against the risky venture of building an amusement park that influenced the council to reject them. But part of him was actually relieved because his plans had already outgrown the amount of space they had in Burbank and four months before they were even rejected they had been feeling out ways to scout for a new location instead the Walt Disney feature animation studios and the ABC executive offices were put on some of the land and the rest is just an empty lot off the 134 freeway but this wasn't Disney's final flirtation with the city of Los Angeles I don't know if you know about this one you batting eyes at me I'm batting my eyes Uh, I'm going blind the person who turned me on to this is Kyle Clark of this is rad did he yeah you're getting influenced by other podcasts that's weird yeah uh, I don't know I mean this is my weekly rad yeah The 90s was supposed to be the Disney decade. And as part of that, they wanted to build a second West Coast theme park. They had connections to three areas on the West Coast. There was Burbank, and we know how that went. Then there was Anaheim, where Disneyland was. And then there was Long Beach. What? The reason they were connected to Long Beach was because back when Disneyland opened, Walt didn't have enough money to build a hotel for the park. So as a favor, his friend Jack Rather built the Disneyland Hotel. But when Disney soon started having all the money in the world, they wanted to buy the hotel, but Rather refused to sell it. Why would you? So they did as Disney does and waited until Rather died and in 1988 bought the entire Rather Corporation. So now they own not just the hotel but also the Queen Mary. Really? Disney owned the Queen Mary. So now it was down to either Long Beach or Anaheim as the location for a second West Coast park and they unveiled the potential plans on August 1st, 1990. In Anaheim it would have been the Westcott Center which would have been a western counterpart to the Epcot Center in Mm -hmm. Florida. You've said Florida way too many times in the uh, podcast today. I'm trying to subliminally say we're moving to Florida. (laughs) But the plans for Long Beach, they were so much greater than just West Coast Epcot. It would have been located in Queensway Bay and would have covered 443 acres 250 of which would have been created on top of the ocean via landfill. By comparison, Disney Disneyland is 85 acres. So this would have been 443 acres. There were two sides to this, the city side and the port side. On the city side would be a series of hotels and stores called the Boardwalk and Rainbow Pier, sort of like a downtown Disney by the sea mixed with the Paradise Pier at California Adventure. There were going to be five hotels. The Tidelands Hotel would have been where the Pike Outlets now are. The Shoreline Hotel, which would have been next to where the aquarium now is. And the Marina Hotel, which would have been near the convention center. The other ones are on the other side of the park. That's why 
those are only three of them. They would have been modeled after different famous waterfronts from around the world and connected via a lagoon. And together with the ones on the port side, they would have a combined 3,900 rooms that would have almost doubled all the accommodations already in Long Beach. This area would be open to the public and would be accessible from the blue line. Inside the marina would have been the world port. It would have looked like a Mediterranean seaside. This was where the Queen Mary would be. They never came up with plans to do with that. Along with the Queen Mary, there would be spots for 400 small boats and also have been a launching pad for Disney cruise ships with berths for five of these behemoths that could have taken you to Mazatlan, Ensenada, San Francisco, Seattle, or Alaska, or nearby trips to Marina del Rey, Catalina, or Newport. This would have made Long Beach the biggest cruise terminal on the West Coast. Now, to get across the area to the port side of the park, you could either take a watercraft, a bridge, or a monorail on the port side now. This area had three more hotels, the Port Hotel, the Regatta Hotel, and the Canal Hotel, which was modeled after the old Virginia Hotel that was in Long Beach, Uh and was also the biggest with 1,400 rooms. And then there was the park itself. You'd walk in through an entryway flanked with sculptures of dolphins and seahorses, and then you were totally immersed in a world of the marvels of nature's secret world beneath the sea, with any side of the harsh-looking cargo point next door blocked by a 17,000 space parking structure. Inside the park, there would have been several different worlds to explore. There was Pirate Island, which would have been an extreme Tom Sawyer Island. To give you an idea, the plans they drew up for this were used to pitch the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Okay. There was Mysterious Island that was modeled after Atlantis and located next to a giant volcano. This would have been Jules Verne themed Mm -hmm. with a suspended roller coaster through lava caves. There was an aqua labyrinth that led you to a place called Heroes Harbor, which would have been modeled on ocean myths and folklore characters like Jason and the Argonauts, Sinbad, and Ulysses. Mm-hmm. I would have liked that. Comedian uh, Sinbad. Harryhausen-esque skeletons. And yeah, you have to fight probably. Them off. Yeah. yeah, bring your own sword. BYOS. <laughs> there were fleets of fancy centered around storybook sea stories, which had amusement rides and also a harbor with replicas of fabled mm-hmm. ships from uh-huh. the past, from all countries and all parts of history. And you could eat on some of them or even take little trips around the water. There would have been an area that looked like a Greek island, an Asian water market, and a Caribbean lagoon where you could surf on one of their beaches and snorkel in the man-made Venture Reef. There would have been sunken ships all around. Uh Also, a shark cage encounter ride with real sharks. No. Jabberjaw, not invited. (laughs) There also would have been an educational side to the park, uh, which is what I'm interested (laughs) in. There was going to be the Future Research Center Lab to study marine life, an ocean outreach center for park visitors and scientists, and also local schools that would have been part of a program for field trips to come visit Disneyland, basically. This would have been one of the most extensive marine libraries in the world, but the crown jewel of the park would have been what was called Oceana. Uh, This would have been their Snow White's castle. It was right in the middle. It was a two-story, 12 million gallon tank that would have been the world's biggest aquarium. It was shaped like giant orbs. You could see ocean life at all depths and angles, and from above, it would look like Mickey's ears. (laughs) He could. He has ears. He has two of them. (laughs) But his his head is also kind of an ear. I don't get that. The name of this park was going to be Disney Sea, but the whole project was called Port Disney, and it was going to open in the year 2000. The LA Times described the plans as a fantasy masterpiece. This would have brought in $1.5 billion a year in business to Long Beach at a time when Long Beach needed $1.5 billion a year. There used to be amusements on the pike there, like a sideshow museum and the Silver Spray Pleasure Pier, but that all closed in 1979, and Port Disney would have made Long Beach an international tourist destination immediately. 
immediately. However, that was something that concerned most of the people there. The biggest concerns were traffic and pollution. With millions of people coming down there a year, that meant a lot of cars coming in the area. That also meant paying for new roads and parking and everything that busier parts of the city have to deal with. There were also concerns that this would disrupt the business at the port of Long Beach, which you cannot do. Yeah. This was also a concern for the companies in Asia that shipped through the port because they got news that Port Disney's coming. So they were worried, wait, so Disney owns the port? Now we can't oh, yeah. ship there. So to clear up the confusion, in October 1991, they renamed the entire thing Disney Sea. On top of that, Disney would have needed over two dozen permits to build the park. And remember, they needed to build 250 acres of new earth on top of the ocean, <laughs> yeah. which both the California Coastal Commission and the Port of Long Beach did not like. On top of that, it was illegal to do that, according to the California Coastal Act. So, of course, Disney set out to change the law. Oh, my God. But the, <laughs> the power these people have. Well, we'll just make it a new law. We'll extend North America. We're going to recede the sea a little bit more <laughs> so we can have a little bit more to work with. You don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> if I want the ocean drained, I'll do it. <laughs> North America's not big enough for me. <laughs> Their attempt to change the law failed and they had to reduce the plans to just 50 acres of landfill. Also, it was expensive. This would have cost $3 billion to build. This was right after Euro Disneyland had just opened, which was a failure at the start. So people weren't confident in Disney at yeah. the time. The people of Long Beach also wanted the park to hire locally, which is something they weren't confident in. Also, especially since when Disney took over the Queen Mary, they fired all the employees that refused to shave their mustaches. It's against Disney code. But we're pirates. <laughs> no, you're Disney. <laughs> you're a Disney crony now. Now where are the Mickey hands? <laughs> but I can't steer the boat. The docked boat. I can't steer it. Disney had never felt the sort of resistance since they tried building in Burbank. Like whenever they try to do something yeah. in LA, it's a no-go. The mayors of Anaheim and Long Beach were slinging insults about each other's cities. At, and then, as you already know, in December 1991, Disney chose Anaheim and went forward with... Eventually, they started decided on California Adventure. Uh, it's always been weird to me why there's two amusement parks back literally back. a stone's throw yeah. away from each other. But now... They didn't it, know what to do with that. Sense. They were like, well, why do we have this much parking lot? Yeah, make something boring. It's not boring. You could buy beer there. It's got the circle swings. That's like everything. The circle the ones that launched me to the Matterhorn. <laughs> Some say that Disney never intended to build in Long Beach and just used those plans as a ruse to get Anaheim to accept a worse deal to allow them Damn. to build California Adventure. The theory kind of makes sense, though, when you consider that in 1992, Disney severed all their ties with Long Beach for good and sold off the Queen Mary. But the Disney Sea plans lived on. The Long Beach Aquarium drew from the abandoned Oceana plans, and in 2001, Disney Sea opened up in Tokyo with a lot of the features that they had planned for Long Beach. Oh, cool. They even built their own Queen Mary replica in Tokyo. So now I have to go to disgusting Tokyo to see Sinbad's ship instead of a quick, beautiful trip to Port of Long Beach. Tokyo, here I come. They call me Tokyo P. I'm the king of the Tokyo B. <laughs> My last one is going to be, again, I touched on a little bit, Pacific Ocean Park. In one of our very first episodes under the Venice Boardwalk. We were so young. We were so young. We only had one microphone. And we yeah, remember that when we had one microphone? Yeah, and we were just learning how to laugh at each other's jokes. Be like, don't laugh, shut up. His name's uh, Al Frankenstein. Don't laugh at him. <laughs> It's not funny. It's not funny. It's not funny that he farted to death. <laughs> it's not funny. There's been a lot of fart talk in this episode. Yeah, it's mostly because I have to pee. Fart talk is also our post podcast about L.A. Meekly. Because that's what I'm <laughs> Most of my research, like 95% of it comes from Christopher Mayer and Dominic Pior's book, Pacific Ocean Park, which is a new book and it's great. You should get it. 
if you like this story that's about to happen. It's the mid-50s, and dentist ballyhoo entrepreneur Charles Dockstrub has one goal in life, to shove it to Walt Disney. Oh, no. He's no. Coming, I'm coming for you. Hey, no. Okay, it's not one goal, but it's... His second goal is to make him suck it. <laughs> Charles Dockstrub, a poker enthusiast, a dentist, a dentist with a golden drill, he was called. Oh. He's the dentist. The dentist with the golden, golden drill. James Bond hates him. Um, <laughs> can't catch him. Because he has so many cavities. Dockstrub, by 1918, had built up a practice of six painless extraction dentist office because when he was a kid there was very painful endeavor so he set about in about 1906 of modernizing dentistry out of the dark ages of gum gnashing and into the 20th century of still scary but less archaic methods but when the san francisco earthquake hit his state-of-the-art equipment was destroyed and he had to rebuild from there like a phoenix from the ashes like in, a phoenix from arizona <laughs> in 1918 this is when he had the sixth dentist office and also around this time investors were looking to purchase the san francisco seals of the pacific coast league which he was on he was able to acquire one third of the club he drove up the prices of purchasing star athletes of the pcl which was new at the time and was behind the hundred thousand dollar asking price for left fielder jimmy o'connell in 1922 in 1929 the stock market crashed and now he was in one million dollars in debt and had to pay everything back like a phoenix from the ashes <laughs> you gotta repay those ashes <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna need those ashes back in 1939 but 10 years later he began investing again uh, like a phoenix who doesn't know how to learn from his lessons <laughs> like a phoenix from the stock market <laughs> he partnered with filmmaker hal roach who i believe did little rascals he did the laurel and hardy stuff too. oh okay i think he did think some version gang. of little R some incarnation of little rascals i'm pretty sure he did yeah i don't know if it's called our gang or little rascals yeah or it's just, called laurel and hardy i think he there just only had a two rascals kids. yeah he had a big family <laughs> okay so strub hal roach and others wanted to buy up lucky baldwin's rancho santa anita in arcadia with the nice purpose of using it as a racetrack in California, which California was deficient in. It was 401 acres of land and cost the boys $2.9 million, but they bought the land. Yeah, um, this is too much money for those days. So they turned it into the Santa Anita racetrack. Things that Strub innovated on. First racetrack in California, duh. $1 admission price was new. They did that. $100,000 purse races. I don't know what that means. Electrical timing of the races, that was new. And the photo finish was new. These men invented everything. Strub was behind a lot of it. In the new Pacific Ocean. Yeah, but Walt Disney made Goofy. You know, the most revered of the Disney characters, Goofy? He made Daisy Duck. He made Daffy's dog, Bolivar. <laughs> in the new Pacific Ocean book that I was talking about, they have a passage. During World War II, the U.S. Army took over Santa Anita Racetrack in order to use it for Ordnance Training Center. Uh, not really. Mm. I can think of something what else I used it for. was that? <laughs> was it an executive order? Was it a holding pen for a certain kind of people? But during the military's time, their two young officers caught the attention of Strub, William James and Bill O'Driscoll, who went by the names Bill and Ben, who are regular Greg and Daniel over time. They finished <laughs> each other's sentences and they were next to each other a lot. Two men who worked very well together, like two arms of the same body. Well, or, you'd almost think they're conjoined. They're just uh, annoying. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're not conjoined. They're not conjoined. They're, they're annoying. annoying. It's similar, but not really. These two men worked very well together like, oh, I said that already. Uh, <laughs> like Greg and Daniel. Oh. Like a phoenix from the ashes. <laughs> a modern day phoenix from Arizona? Wait a minute, two what are we talking wings? about? <laughs> I smell toast. How did, what's happening? After the war, Strub got in contact with the two boys to help with the Lake Arrowhead Village, which was a charm collection of hotels and pavilions and restaurants and homes in the San Bernardino Forest. Strub invested millions of dollars into revamping the village and it took off as a huge tourist spot and these two guys who were designers helped with it. He had a knack for turning failing businesses around and taking consumers in mind. Yeah, so they're not like us. No, they actually understand people and they know how to read people and they see what people want and they fill that space. It's like a supply and demand, but we were just... We're all demand. We're all demand. And we, <laughs> no supply. No supply. We also don't understand the demands. It's, it feels like we're not 
good at anything. It feels like we're a regular shoots bark. We're a regular Phoenix Ashes. <laughs> we're the second half of the Marine Land story. <laughs> we're a regular Orky and Corky. <laughs> we cry when we're separated and then one of us dies. And the other one turns really aggressive. Who's it going to be? <laughs> so Strum had a knack for turning failing businesses around and taking consumers in mind. He was a little whimsical when I was great. He knew how to use attractions and carnival style ballyhoo, which is a word I wrote a lot in this to get attention. So now these men are wealthy and famous and it's 1953 and Walt Disney has a grand vision of a modern amusement park something to violently shove the rinking dinky amusement park back into the shadows which is I use that phrase a lot not even realizing it so okay like you said his agents were scouring Southern California for a big enough area to fit his vision because his vision was out physically outgrowing the plots of land while his agents were scouting for areas Disney was out scouting for money 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 <laughs> just like the Frankenstein-esque creature he created that would outlive him Bolivar? <laughs> and one question are you alluding to Bolivar? so the LA Turf Club which I don't think I mentioned Dockstra was almost the head of had shown interest in investing in this Disneyland this Mickey Mouse <laughs> park and because of their experience with the successful Lake Arrowhead property Bill and Ben were loaned out to Disney by Doc and the Turf Club to help Disney with early plannings of the park and Strub verbally agreed to put up half the money to make Disneyland Disney would put up $10 million and the Turf Club would match it great not great because Doc Strub had demands mm. said to Disney he said you need to build this along the ocean and Disney said uh, that was a, one place I was not going to put it <laughs> I'll tell you where to put it Strub said the Turf Club would want to manage Disneyland and yeah. Disney said nobody's going to tell Walt Disney that's him what to do which is fair so Disney said well what about Bill and Ben and Strub said what about Bill and Ben they're ours you don't get to keep them oh, so God. then they parted ways and Strub was unhappy over the next couple of years Doc would continue to mull over the idea of an oceanside amusement park that would rival Disneyland you know it's so weird that Disney at this time like people could talk to Disney like yeah. that or reject Disney because they were kind of failing at that at this like after World yeah, War they were they were like barely sticking their head out of the mud you could talk down to walt disney and but it, he like had a catalog of it like doc strub was one of them yeah. strub started developing his own idea long Goofy's gone hit list <laughs> he's got a rifle and he's pointed towards Bena park long gone were the days where the venice amusement piers had been either active or family friendly so let's go back a little bit to remind everybody about venice and the piers there mm -hmm. abbott kinney was a genius visionary who created the venice beach area the coney island of the west as it was called there were canals there was beautiful bathhouses and there were a pier of many kinney had a partner who he shared ownership of ocean park area with which was pretty vast and his partner had died and the widow married a man who was in the business with two other men these men were <laughs> now these men were alexander frazier there was another man named Merritt jones and another man named chase or something chase kinney did not care for these men so there was a coin toss to see how they would split this area three men and this abbott kinney this, this is <laughs> yeah. i love that movie three men and abbott kinney <laughs> this sounds really familiar this, yeah, we, we talked about we you talk, talk, you yeah, talk, you told i remember the coin toss yeah the north side was idyllic this neighboring santa monica and the south side was the swamps kinney tosses the coin it works in his favor the other three guys are like oh what are we gonna do with the swamps and then he event <laughs> and he was like well i want the venice beach area i want the swamps and they're like well, I'm a crazy person so he gets the swamp area the guys get three and they think uh what a sucker he turns the swamps into the venice canals and it becomes this one of the first amusement areas of los angeles where people mm -hmm. from all over would come and that coin went on to be president <laughs> <laughs> it filled in for abraham lincoln after he was shot <laughs> okay so i'm confused about the boundaries of santa monica venice and ocean park but venice beach apparently starts at navy street ocean park must have went from Ocean Park Boulevard to Lincoln and Santa Monica was everything else that was like north or west yeah it was right next to Santa yeah, Monica yeah so Navy, Ocean Park. Navy Street matters later the three men were highly competitive and angry about Kinney's success with Venice Frazier more so so Santa Monica Ocean Park Venice Ocean Park and Venice are really one lot split by two men nothing's part of really LA yet so on the Ocean Park side the coin toss losers build a gigantic and ornate Arabian palace to frame a gorgeous saltwater bathhouse this was in 1905 and the, as the other two amusement parks were just getting crazy 
as I've seen in photos, th this was really marvelous. But it wasn't enough. So in 1910, Alex Fraser contracted and expanded the existing Ocean Park Pier, bringing the original 1895 pier out another 1,500 feet. This would be Fraser's million dollar pier, which we talked about, that opened in June of 1911. And it, its prides were two roller coaster esque rides the Dragon Gorge Scenic Railroad, which went over the ocean, and the Grand Canyon Scenic Railroad. Also, there was two giant ballrooms, two hippodromes, which were merry go round carousels. There was a vaudeville theater, there was a casino, and there's a roller rink. And this fantastic park had two great summers before it was burnt down in <laughs> September of 1912 by a pier fries. <laughs> Frazier rebuilt and reopened the pier the following year, like a phoenix who compulsively builds flammable <laughs> traps for himself. Like a phoenix from the sands of Santa Monica. <laughs> he rebuilt and expanded attractions and such, and in 1919, Frazier sold the property to Ernest Pickering, thus Frazier's million dollar pier became Pickering's pleasure pier, doubling its size. But in 1921, the Venice Ocean Park area had changed. Ocean Park City franchise was revoked, and now the pier, which ran off of Pier Avenue, from what I understand, was smack dab in Santa Monica's territory. After that point, the three men, Charles Lick, Austin McFadden, and George Leahy, announced plans to build the Lick Pier on Navy Street, a four-minute walk from Pier Avenue, which meant that Lick Pier would be built alongside, connected to Pickering Pier, which was on the Ocean's Park side. So these two piers are in two different cities, but they're connected. The Lick Pier, like I said, Venice Turf, the Pickering Pier was now on Santa Monica's side, along with whatever was left of Ocean Park. The big draw to Lick Pier was the 22,000 square foot dance floor, the Bon Ton Ballroom, and the Dome Theater, which then became a movie theater. The Lick Pier altogether was 224 feet wide and 800 feet long. It had a zip roller coaster, a ski ball, captive air airplanes ride and a dodge and ride so that was all nice but then in 1924 the entire business district near the pier west of the boardwalk burned down fire pier for mm -hmm. so pickering decides to cash out and sells the pier to the venice investment company and the west coast theaters for two million dollars and then the city of santa monica basically goes to war with them claiming that they couldn't issue a building permit because they wanted to lease the sand which the city owned i imagine by the pound so this was <laughs> tied land rights they owned the sand they owned the land underneath you so lick pier had no issues because they weren't venice territory but Pickering Pier had a deal with that. And after all this hoopla, the Venice Investment Company was able to rent the land from Santa Monica, $2,000 a month from the city, and now it would be called Ocean Park Pier. This was 1925. Combined, these two piers would provide the physical layout and frame for the eventual Pacific Ocean Park. But Ocean Park Pier had some fun things. They had a roller coaster called the High Boy. It was a roller coaster. It went along the edges of the pier, right? It was pretty fast, and it had sharp edges, like really sharp turns. What do you think that means? Uh, whiplash, constant whiplash, or people flying off the oh into the ocean. They were they were jettisoned <laughs> off the ride. <laughs> missed the pier which would have probably crushed their skull and they landed in the ocean they had an area called Tunerville which in Merritt's book he calls it a cabinet of Dr. Calgary-esque haunted village with oh, spooky animal cool. everything was kind of bent and weird looking it was really, it looks Ooh. really cool there are a lot of great stories about the gap years of Ocean Park and Lick Piers until it becomes POP and it was a lot of fun and kind of like a rinky dink little pier fun but standard your basic carnival what kept the pier going for a long time was a 24 hour club at the Bonton Ballroom on the pier built in 1924 that had groups coming over after their shifts at Douglas Aircraft to dance all night nothing sounds more relaxing after a Billy aircraft to kill the Nazis. I want to <laughs> dance and drink all night. I want to dance all night. So by the 1940s, the area had become a little rough around the edges with gambling and hard boozing surviving long past prohibition years. In 1951, there was a turnaround because Lawrence Welk starts Lawrence Welk show broadcasting out of the Aragon Ballroom at the Lick Pier showcasing local singing group the Lennon Sisters who one my great aunts knew. By 1955, it was such a highly rated show that ABC broadcast the show nationally. This was maybe the only good thing happening at the pier 
year at that time. They offered to sell the pier to Welk, but he declined. By 1954, games were non-operational and businesses on the pier were in decline, so they were trying to get rid of this pier on the cheap. What drew Doc Strub to notice the pier at all was the Lawrence Welk show that he had a residency there. Okay, so now it's 1955, Disneyland opens, and even though opening day, Black Sunday is insane, the park is a major success. Now Doc Strub knows that this is time to strike, either as an act of contemptuous competitiveness or perhaps wanting to piggyback off the public's amusement park high. The old pier offered twofold an advantage. They came at a fair price, and the Lawrence Welk show legitimized it. So the Turf Club buys the Ocean Park Pier and the Lick Pier for $3 million. Bill and Ben in the press promised wholesome family fun. Wholesome family fun! <laughs> Unlike the two or so decades of grime that the peers had lived through. They hire the architectural firm Pereira and Luckman to draft plans who were also tapped to draft plans for Disneyland and that, that never yeah. was. Under their belt, other than that, they also did the CBS television studios and Robinson's department store in Beverly Hills and Pasadena. Pereira said regarding their plans for the park that we feel futuristic. So lessons learned from Disneyland. One, make money. Two, don't have a loose collection of Two, random... bring a hat. Bring a hat. Get on all the scary rights first and then you don't have to worry about it for the rest of the day. <laughs> you would dread it forever. <laughs> Two, don't have a loose collection of random carnival rides with no overarching theme. Hence, theme park, as you said. Oh, this is a farm theme park. Oh, this is gulag theme. This is corn theme. <laughs> have a theme. Corn theme. Bill's corn. Um, <laughs> Bill's corn park. <laughs> so all the rides in the piers would be remodeled and revamped with a space-age nautical theme. Googie and modern as hell. Hmm. The high boy would become the sea serpent, stuff like that. Shops along the outer promenade would form the most ambitious part of the park, Neptune's kingdom. It's 1957. The Turf Club announces that the Santa Monica City Council approved a 17-year lease of the Ocean Park Pier and a nearby property and a 25-year lease on the Tidelands in the Ocean Park Auditorium. Bill and Ben hadn't been negotiating with CBS, thus making the Turf Club and the CBS partners in the venture and started a jointly owned company, Pacific Ocean Park, P.O.P. Work got started by tearing out some of the old structures that were unsuitable to the new designs and for the ones that could be remodeled, just they just drew fins on them or whatever. <laughs> Mid-1957, Bill and Ben take over the ride design from Luckman and Pariah right. to add a sense of indefinable magic to the park, which doesn't look good on an invoice. They brought in movie studio people to help out. Maurice Ayers, who was a special effects expert, was brought in. He had worked on Cleopatra and he had helped create the Red Sea scene in Ten Commandments. That's why I recognize the name. Ayers. Ayers along with... Pariah. Pariah. Ayers. Pariah. Cleopatra. Ten Commandments. Moses. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Ramesses. Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Thou shalt not build corn parks. (laughs) Ayers, along with some other studio people, would help build the sets and some of the rides. He brought in his brothers-in-law, also studio men, Don and Bud Drieger, and they began designing and building the nautical world of Pacific Ocean Park. Ayers worked on the pier's two big attractions, the Mystery Banana Train Island, which is a long name, which was at the end of the pier where you can board a docked excursion boat and take tours of the Santa Monica Bay. And Where's the banana? Why is the bananas involved in this? Why you gotta bring bananas in this? This also isn't a train, it's a boat. And Neptune's <laughs> Kingdom, which is a miniature train ride through animal habitats like chattering monkeys, not real. Beavers, not real. Otters, I don't know. Parrots, not real. <laughs> then you tunnel through a volcanic mountain and under a thatched roof area where a tropical rainstorm would pour down overhead. Huh. There was live fish and sea animals in glass cases giving the illusion that you were under the Pacific. Then you see King Neptune at the end of the ride and he looks angry. It all looked akin to Disney's movie 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is fitting since Fred Hartman, who was helped design the park, also worked film production and design on that. It also sounds kind of like Disney Sea a lot. Yeah, it does. Everything after you said Marineland and Disney at Sea, I'm like mm. Disney at Sea would have been a better name. <laughs> so they were shooting for an opening of 1958, and the construction was moving along in January, February. But Doc Strub had a stroke and died soon after, never being able to see his vision realized, never getting to stick it to Disney. There's a man named Gwen Wilson who filled his position as vice president of the Turf Club, and then the president and vice president of CBS became members of the board of directors of the club. But despite people working round the clock shifts, opening 
opening day was pushed from June to the end of July, pushing way over budget and frustrating everyone. So in June, during the scramble to open and set up all the ships of, you're gonna love this, the shipments of ride parts and animals started to arrive because they're gonna have like a zoo, like a little zoological. The pieces of the banana train came in, great. <laughs> Porpoises were delivered on white foam rubber mattresses. That's great. Wait, real or fake? I think they were real. They but, just put a porpoise on a mattress? And just like, like a relax. Bed? Yeah, so they brought in a couple of chimpanzees, <laughs> Rob Roy and Tonga. The problem with the two was during their journey to the park, they escaped from the cages and drank a gallon of expensive perfume that was 65% alcohol. Oh, no. The perfume was going to be used to add scent to the waters in Neptune's fountain, and it was estimated that Rob Roy and Tonga, these two monkeys, drank $2,300 worth of perfume. Wow. The life of a monkey. These college-age monkeys. <laughs> that must have been a lot of perfume if it was going to scent all of Neptune's domain. They must have just cracked a cold one open. In late June, early July of 1958, you could not hear about P.O.P opening soon it was all over the radio and in print everywhere announcing that the grand opening was approaching there was these weird publicity gimmicks going they like hired two Samoan chiefs and a member of the British Council General they were asked to come to P.O.P they were flown in to secede the South Sea Islands at the tip of the pier and to make the pier an honorary member of the Samoan Islands that's good make a joke of them that's good yeah, yeah. Let's let's take jabs at the Samoan Islands. Film actress Mitzi Gaynor of the movie South Pacific cast lays into the lagoon at the loading mm. station while those inebriated the monkeys mon ate them. The monkeys oh, no. rode the train around the park eating bananas to try to sober up. Uh, <laughs> Do a few laps, okay? <laughs> Three days before the grand opening, they had a soft opening for the press and invited 3,000 kids from different youth organizations to come and put their gross little hands on everything. <laughs> and they had Debbie Reynolds and Art Linkletter serving as a host for the events. <laughs> the kids were there until 4 p.m. Then it was P.O.P. After dark. Oh, no. Uh, what are the monkeys drinking now? <laughs> Let's get the monkeys more drunk. You smell awful nice. No, but they did have an evening event, like some silly boy gala, to benefit the Rice Davis Child Guidance Clinic. In attendance were noted stars Jerry Lewis, oh. Dean Martin, oh, God. George and Gracie Allen, Hi. Greg Peck, Lauren Bacall, and Judy Garland. The high-class entry fee for this event was a whopping $12.50. <laughs> Pacific Ocean Park officially opened to the public on July 22nd or the 26th or the 28th. I read all three of them, 1958 and 19. 20,354 guests attended the beautiful new Space Age Nautical Amusement Park. Opening ceremonies were held under the very sleekly designed starfish-shaped dome at the entrance of the new Neptune's courtyard, it's which was beautiful. Starfish, but like Jefferson starfish. Yeah. <laughs> like a space starfish. A space fish. Yeah, space fish. <laughs> I should be writing for SpongeBob. <laughs> Replacement of Doc and a girl named Janine Dowles, who was dubbed Miss Fragrance of France, poured whatever perfume was left that the chimps didn't get into. They poured it into the fountain while Bill and Ben, along with the CBS Vice President James Aubrey, Lawrence Welk, and Leo Carrillo of the Turf Club turned oversized prop valves and let the waterfalls in the courtyard <laughs> and to begin to flow as hundreds of balloons released and the crowds rushed in. It was a massive hit from the get-go. A lot of people were really impressed, especially investors, and so were the people who helped create it, but the guests went crazy for it. And over the next weekend, they saw 40,000 people come in one day, trumping up Disneyland for that given day, at least one mm, day. Disney Burbank would have <laughs> never dipped that low. Traffic in that area was a catastrophic mess if you can imagine <laughs> everything in that area is two lane streets it's, and they blocked yeah, all of it it's bad as it is there was like lines going to marina del rey by december of that year <laughs> over a million people had entered pop there was a flying dutchman a dark ride on the tracks with threatening pirates and others behind bars it was obviously inspired by pirates of the caribbean there's the deepest <laughs> deep they rode into a submarine style car with a plastic dome where you can look out and see mermaids and stuff mm, a little, yeah, little, little nemo familiar. there's a little nemo <laughs> oh finding nemo that's what it, no that's the other one <laughs> little nemo's adventure with albert brooks <laughs> There was a flying fish was a standard wild rice roller coaster. There's Mr. Dolphin, which is a Starliner ride. With Mr. Dolphin's wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's just a fish now. Stand Snow out. and the seven guppies. Okay, there's the Union 76 Ocean Highway, which was like futuristic looking cars, like Autopia. Oh, there's also a flight to Mars. <laughs> 
<laughs> like a certain space mountain uh, there's ocean skyway which is the gondolas that like they used to have at disneyland too yeah. there's a sea circus which was like sea animal shows there's a mirror maze which is like a fun house the country fish jamboree tunerville turned into david jones locker now it was like spooky mirrors but it was like nautical uh, a haunted reef <laughs> perhaps so these are all the right there's a lot going on there then the decline which came swiftly and then sort of over a decade when i say swiftly like a it was phoenix like dying like a phoenix dying and then not coming back so first cbs took over most of the turf club they fired bill but not ben the neighborhood was not great when the park was created and over the years as we'll hear and we already know it was not in a good place and nor would it be in a very for a very long time but most of all the villain of this story is santa monica the city of santa monica had a love-hate relationship with the park as early as 1959 the next year the redevelopment agency of santa monica wanted to build skyscrapers and scrambling to relocate and skyscrapers <laughs> nothing but skyscrapers um, oh you're singing skyfall skyfall as goldfinger <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of layers where this is a memento joke not a memento oh my god oh my there's god. even it's more layers so late. You wanna, as early as 1959 the redevelopment agency of santa monica wanted to build skyscrapers and in the scramble to relocate and rehouse families in the wake of all this incoming redevelopment they began knocking down buildings having streets blocked for construction thus blocking the entrance to pop for many people the park was greatly affected by santa monica's redevelopment which seems like they didn't care santa monica was designing itself to be a place for first class people not coach mm-hmm. and in doing that they killed a piece of ocean park that was essential to old venice when through those years they leveled out city blocks at a time they were just killing out this whole area's flavor in january of 1959 the park closed to renovate till may of that year think about that they opened in the summer of 1958 and by january they were closing to renovate Okay, so in renovations, all they really did was they added a new color scheme. They captured a whale and some dolphins for the Sea Circus show, and they added a petting zoo called Zooland. There was also an insane ride called the Space Wheels. Four (laughs) merged Ferris wheels stacked too high, rotated at the center by two huge arms, and it reached out 92 feet in the air. Oh, my God. Hard no thank you. Well, that sounds like a terrible idea. It's terrible. Let's do Connect Four. (laughs) They finally added a kitty area called Fun Force since everything else was so intense. Tickets were now 35 cents more. More than it should have been. It was uh, now up to a dollar twenty-five. No thanks. First, the many things was filled there. It was an episode of Sunset Strip seventy-seven. Cool, but a better shows in store. By August of nineteen fifty-nine, they weren't doing well. Even after reducing ticket prices again, after an assessment of the park, a report indicated that major renovations were needed to boost attendance. A little over a year after opening up, they they needed major renovations. The park was hemorrhaging money at this point. They had a huge overhead. They needed two point three million more dollars. So CBS and Turf Club were like, nope, and decided to kill it or at least sell it. So then the park goes to a gregarious and energetic guy named jack morehart who seems perfect for the job morehart was part of the pacific seaboard land co and was very interested in taking the property so they opened up in 1960 with festive fanfare they have a children's sea circus parade on ocean promenade overseen by the grand marshal dennis the menace <laughs> well actually the guy's name is dennis menacing the J north they also had a baby elephant from oh. bangkok and they painted it pink for the parade oh. and they had a baby baby elephant walk clomp opening day 1960 through memorial day weekend which was a month into opening under new management they were able to pay off the remaining debt to bank of america which is great morehart also wanted to try a new thing to build and operate an fm station at the pier and call it ksrf or ksurf but it's not the one we're thinking of i know i got really excited (laughs) same name not 1260 am the best station in los angeles yeah what might be the saving los angeles radio it was an automated station so music would play on hi-fi 
reel-to-reel tapes instead of phonographs from seven machines preset to run for 14 hours which feels like case surf it was located at neptune's kingdom I, I hope it was one of those places where like you see a window and you see like the disc jockey and you like wave to him like play <laughs> play uh, the platters and- it's samuel l jackson behind the glass <laughs> also put into play was a new successful paying system called pay one price also pop you only had to pay the entry fee and all the other rides and everything was free after that all the rides and games were free you just had to pay it for admissions because so if, if you've ever been to the orange county fair or the pomona county fair you like oh I well I, I paid 50 dollars to get in here i guess everything else free <laughs> no well that's how disneyland was at the beginning yeah how do they do oh are <laughs> they still around oh they are oh trouble oh Why bother na- oh bother the poo's eating my honey brain <laughs> by 1961 lawrence welk moved his show to the hollywood palladium and with the pop admission price you could attend free concerts at the aragon ballroom now called the pop pavilion and with the success of the american bandstand more hearts saw an opportunity so they got a popular radio dj from kfwb news 98 but it wasn't the news it was KHJ. his name was wink martindale i only know him because he was referenced by conan wink martindale why don't i know wink martindale i was thinking of funky winker bean but that's another no. that's a comic strip i think he might have been on never not funny or something. oh wink martindale whatever he's probably dead now um he's probably still alive well, silver fox like a phoenix oh, yeah. like a phoenix that just grows gray hair they got wink martindale to host the pop dance party and it would be broadcast from the pier sometimes in the pavilion but sometimes in the sea circus area for fun day shows why like why film at the beach if you aren't going to be outside martindale was able to get big names on the show from his days being a dj he had connections he got johnny cash jan and dean he got their alternate reality selves dan and gene <laughs> he got the everly brothers he got sam cook he got frankie avalon he got johnny mathis local abused children the beach boys performed their first hit <laughs> surfing on pop dance party the bell airs unleashed mr moto on uh, pop dance party percy faith performed the hit a theme from a summer place which i was singing at the beginning of the show <laughs> it all comes back dick dale and daltones performed let's go tripping when it was really big uh, richie valens performed donna on the show when he was still alive uh, no Rosie and the Originals played Angel Baby on the show as well. And those are just <laughs> the ones that I felt like writing down. There was a surf trend going on in the country in Pacific Ocean Park, and it became embedded in the Southern California dream surf culture. Like, P.O.P. was hip. It was part of that surf movement yeah, that happened. Weird. And it did something that Disneyland could never do. It was cool for teenagers. Hmm. Disneyland's still cool for teenagers. I go every grad night. It's real cool. They somehow let me in. I have my ID from 19. Still, I still have my PE shorts. so <laughs> <laughs> And an ID from 2003, and they still let me in. I'm like, even after 9-11, they're not going to stop this kind of thing? Which I remember clearly. <laughs> Which I remember as it was yesterday. I woke up, my mom said, we're being attacked, and I immediately thought aliens, and I was very sad for about, like I don't know, 15 years after that. So you recovered last year. Yeah, I can kind of. Like, all the new stuff that's happened since November, those are the golden age, the golden days. The golden eye? Golden eye! Um, Ace Pierce Brosnan so there are a lot of things that were filmed at the pier but there's one thing that stands out from the rest in 1963 probably sooner two episodes of this show were filmed at P.O.P. one was titled Perchance to Dream and one was called Praise for Pip oh my god filmed at P.O.P. Rod Serling was a huge fan of Pacific Ocean Park it did what he always sought to do which was take him back to his childhood he took his daughter to P.O.P. and when his own father died he penned Praise for Pip and he couldn't think of anywhere else where it should be filmed maybe a cheaper place but whatever (laughs) two of our favorite episodes were filmed at P.O.P. about praise for pip one of my favorites. praise for pip is one of my favorites and it's, you told me to watch it so it has to be one of your favorites <laughs> and pretense to dream is wonderful and it's got va va boom the cat girl oh my yeah. the cat girl give me let's just talk about her and again we're on adam carolla's show again oh women are attractive hey take it to joe rogan <laughs> hey settle down here let's not make any statements we can't take back <laughs> 
<laughs> no hard takes, please. By this point, one thing was becoming clear to Jack Moore Hart. The park was not making him any profit. There was a huge overhead to operate. Too many people were coming, then not coming. And the ocean air was thick and the moisture was causing damage. The rides uh -huh. and the looks of the pier was deteriorating. He had to raise the adult price to $1.91 and added no new rides. $1.91? Who's going to... They're going to give out nine pennies every time someone gives them $2? Cool. I could not do anything with this. So in 1963, Moore Hart sold the Santa Monica portion of POP to San Francisco-based realtor Irving K for $7.5 million. So the last big good thing to happen at POP was the opening of the very different Cheetah discotheque. The sign of the times and the area as a whole and the country. Cheetah was a moody, psychedelic venue for bands and for artists to exhibit work. It was meant for hippies and artists, which no thank you. Bands that played there include The Doors, Jefferson's Airplane. <laughs> Jefferson Starfish? Uh, was Jeff there? Jefferson Starship, that's their home base. Starfish. Uh, <laughs> Eric Burden and the Animals played there. Captain Beefheart played there. The Seeds, the Standals, Buffalo Springfield, Janis Joplin. Water Buffalo Springfield? Water Buffalo Springfield. And I was going to try to make a Captain Beefheart joke. Well, he's a sailor. Ooh, duh, there we go. <laughs> How can I connect Captain Beefheart to the What's ocean? The ocean? <laughs> Can't put it together. So it's late 60s, and you could only imagine what snotty Santa Monica had to say about people like Captain Beefheart yeah. walking around. The uh, only Beefheart I eat is Tartar. <laughs> tartar! They said, like, on the roof of a skyscraper, and no one heard them. They said it to a hawk that was perched on their arm. And a phoenix ate it. Damn, Phoenix! So also that year, February of 1967, a 12-year-old boy who was fishing with his sister on the catwalks of the pier at the edge, that lower deck, fell into rough waters and drowned, which did not help the image of the pier. <laughs> the not last thing the hippie culture needed. <laughs> this is what the city of Santa Monica needed, was like, see, POP yeah, is dangerous. Yeah, give me a reason. Give me a 12-year-old dead boy. And I'll give you the world. <laughs> In March of that year, the city of Santa Monica received a cancellation notice from one of POP's insurance carriers, and if there was no liability on the park, Santa Monica was not going to revoke their business license happily. It's renew no they're gonna revoke the business oh, they license. will if, revoke yeah it if there's no liability they were gonna like haha okay one of the heads of pop rushed over to santa monica to show them that they were insured for 1.5 million dollars even though that was kind of flimsy from what i read but he still showed up and for what he heard from santa monica was opinions about the state of the decay of the park the peeling paint the old restaurants boarded up windows it wasn't attractive to look at from high-rise apartment complexes in santa monica and that's when he knew it was over when like he came like hey i have what you need and then like ugly park you got there. It'd be a shame if it uh, got uglier. <laughs> so in August the city of Santa Monica filed a suit against POP to regain the physical possession of the most of the land that the park stood on and by April of 1968 the park was sold off ride by ride, thing by thing, and closed gate padlocked. Monkey the, by monkey. The monkey by monkey. We're sending him to SeaWorld. He needs to be a barker. He's got <laughs> enough perfume in his body. Poor thing's got a real problem. <laughs> Lick's pier side of the park where the POP pavilion was was active for years because it was not part of Santa Monica but it was also not family friendly. I read that they filmed the movie they shoot horses don't they at the Aragon ballroom and use it to recreate the La Monica ballroom which was on the Santa Monica Pier which was where the novels was based on I have no idea where this movie was filmed I feel like this whole podcast is just you trying to figure, figure out, out where they filmed where they shoot horses either don't way they? it's destroyed I'll never be able to go and reenact my favorite part which is the end it's the part about they shoot horses hey, hey 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 it's what they, they say in response to they shoot or response becomes they shoot horses don't they yes what's the rest of this movie about dancing I showed up two hours late what is this about so in 1969 what's all this then what, what's all this then so in 1969 a section of the midway gave and fell into the ocean and nobody seemed to care did they just the, leave it there yeah there's pictures. so i can swim under that ocean which i'll never do oh and, and ride some sort of uh, i don't know banana train or whatever <laughs> i mean when the midway gave they didn't do anything about it so they, they in that time they just left it over the years it became a hangout for rough kids and bums the z boys known for the great documentary oh. dogtown and z boys used to surf the, the wreckage if you watch the they'll they'll show pop looking like a ghost they'll talk oh. about it so it's 
weird for all the fuss that Santa Monica made about it being an eyesore. They just left it to rot there. Like it's Antigone's <laughs> it brother. Looks better left, this way. <laughs> Antigone's brother left on the battlefield. Like just oh yeah, it's fine like this. In mid 1970s, someone set fire to Lick Pier side of the park, destroying the Aragon Ballroom and the Safari Ride. Fire purifies all. Sadly, mm-hmm. according to the book, hippies building a fire under the pier lost control of the campfire and set it ablaze by accident. In 1974, an even more devastating fire destroyed what was left. Probably the same hippies who never paid attention as Boy Scouts. Now it's just wood piling on the shore but this wood piling used to rival Disneyland and it's for the locals it was like the setting of their life growing up along a beach in Los Angeles it had so much promise when it was set up like if you look at pictures you're like that that should still be a thing we have here but it's not so now it's it's that's nothing it's just like a wood there's a little bit left on the shore at ocean avenue i think or pier avenue and it's just like wood pilings of whatever they didn't want to clean up it's still there so i can go be a z-boy on it you can be a z-boy yeah you could yeah that's what zaffron stands for i'm I'm z-boy i'm the (laughs) z-boy well yeah those are those are amusement parks those for the amusement parks of la we did all ones that were closed or never yeah opened the only ones i can think of in los angeles are universal studios and magic mountain yeah it's sad there should be like more little fun things like that even describing like agricultural park or pop sounds like hipsters would love it yeah i would love it yeah I'm not a hipster. I'm uh-huh. I'm the genuine article. I'm a Z boy. And I go around Venice saying that. <laughs> hey, I say locals only. Uh, no parking. <laughs> I've been going to Universal Studios a lot. Yeah. I wish there were more amusement parks inside Los Angeles city limits that right. I don't have to drive four hours to. I, I wish I could take a 25 cent trolley ride yeah. to an amusement park. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Instead, I have to navigate all the laws of the city to be able to park for free to go to Universal Studios. Everyone uh, should go look up Ward Kimball. Thank you. Bye. And Maya uh, the Cat Girl. I'm not done talking. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about War Kimball and the Firehouse Five. <laughs> anyway, if we're your favorite, stop. Uh, go on iTunes. Yeah. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes or just leave us a five star rating. If you have an iPhone, just open the podcast app. It's right there. It's easy to do. It makes it easier for people to find us. And that makes, uh, you know, a little bit more of a community for you to take part in if there's more people involved. We're all over social media. We have an Instagram, Ali underscore Meekly. We are on Twitter at Ali Meekly. You can search for us on Facebook. Facebook under, guess what, Ali Meekly. <laughs> Our Tumblr is lameekly.tumblr.com. You can find the whole archive there. You could send us an email, la.meekly at gmail.com. You can have suggestions, comments, uh, criticisms, hate mail. Leave the criticisms, mostly hate mail. <laughs> send it to Greg's personal address, uh, coolguy69 at... 69666. <laughs> if you think you'd be a good subject or have a recommendation, recommendation for an episode subject, or if you'd be a subject of an episode. Oh, you did it! I finally did it. For one of our field trip episodes, send us something. We've been doing a few of those, yeah, and they're we, fun. We got a couple more in the bag. We want yeah, to do a lot more. Soon. There'll be another one this month for you. We were on Vanessa Gritton's Take a Walk podcast. Let's we were talking about our favorite murder spots, which was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun that day. Yeah. I almost died during the, the yeah, recording of that episode. You, you can, can hear me run out of breath and almost <laughs> think I'm going to have get, a meltdown. Yeah, you can hear me think <laughs> I'm going to throw up on my exposed stomach, which I needed to do to not get which truck. I haven't done since I was a toddler. A, a little babe. Yeah, listen to that. It's very LA history and crime yeah. and murder yeah, centric. Should, yeah, it's fun. Other than that, I mean, we're just really cool kids and yeah. I'm a Z-boy and Greg is, you know, no. he's Mr. Freeze. Yeah, I'm Mr. Freeze and locals only, you know, and uh, sometimes uh, boxing bears are fun. Sometimes drunk chimps are cool. This has been a very animal friendly. Yeah, except for everything that happened to the animals. Yeah, except for, yeah, if you're a rabbit or a whale, don't listen to this episode that you were telling you now. I'm 
I'm looking at you, Corky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month in... <gasps> Daniel and Greg will return <laughs> next month in James Bond reference. Or uh, Back to the Future, question mark. Or also Jurassic Park. <laughs> so that has been yet another episode of Ellie Minkley. Rising from the ashes of a long vacation we shouldn't have took since 2013. Jazz. And jazz. <laughs>